morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, and so we should pause, take a breath, and exercise our options because they are more than what might immediately meet the eye. And we so we are so excited today to have on the air once again um our our dear brother um Michael Kubaka Harris. Good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having excellent, me. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And um and he introduced us to the wonderful artist and also veteran. Um did mention that um Brother Kubaka is also a veteran. And we are continuing our honoring of the veterans with this show. We have on the air. Um, uh, do you do you call yourself Baba or Mister or how should I start? Like, what's your honorific? Baba Akinsanya. Okay, Baba Akinsanya Kaban, um, who actually has an exhibit opening at the Crocker Museum in Sacramento um, in February 2020, and hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit about that as well. But this particular um, Veterans Day, not just here in California, but also in Kentucky and maybe even elsewhere, um, Colonel Charles Young um, and the legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers um, was lifted up and honored. And so um, so maybe, um, uh, Kubaka, maybe you could, um, maybe you could, you could start it off. Um, I... Um, I I found a bio for you um, under African Food Basket, and I don't know if you want me to read that one <laughs> um, because I know you know you're really active around you know the black farmers because that's how I met you. Um, so how would you how do you want me to introduce you? Uh, yeah, that's fine. It, you, you can make it short. I'm, uh, oh, it's not short. It's long. Um, well, I just wanted to know yeah, if you yeah. like that one. <laughs> That it's fine, yeah, but you know we we that wanna work yes yeah, yes, ma'am, okay, um, so um, Kubaka or Michael Harris is a native of Sacramento, California. He serves as the chair of the California Black Agriculture Working Group 
a statewide multidisciplinary collaborative providing tangible action plans to increase the number and participation by urban and rural agriculture producers of African ancestry in the number one agriculture industries in the world. For over 15 years, um, and this it's more than that now because this bio is was posted on in 2017. <laughs> so like 17 years now, um, Mr. Harris served as a development director, California Black Farmers and Agriculturalists Association, and for five years as a member of the USDA community-based organization partners team. In 2004 through 2008, he served as the urban agriculture representative on the Food and Farm Policy Diversity Initiative, um, highlighting successful outcomes during negotiations leading up to the creation of the 2008 Food and Energy Act. Um, uh, Pickford, two class action claimants, those who suffered under past racial discrimination by the USDA employees and policies, received nearly a billion dollars in um, in of financial payments and priority assistance meant to partially offset major losses by black farmers in America. He is currently the assistant project manager for Carson Creek Ranch Food and Agriculture Center. The Africa USA International Chamber of Commerce and Industry, California Black Chamber of Commerce, and additional collaborative partnerships. Um, I think like the um, uh, the Juneteenth, uh, the National Juneteenth um, Committee, I believe, is that what it's called? Yes. Michael, okay. Yeah. And um, let's see. And it says, um, <laughs> so the plans are to develop the Carson Creek Ranch Food and Agriculture Center into a world-class facility that expands job creation, technical education, career advancement, and economic development throughout California and the Pan-African diaspora. So... Is the center is it open? Has has it? No, it, it's finished? not open currently. We have some technical issues, but we're still actively pursuing that and partner mm -hmm. with UC Davis, uh, Sac State. <clears throat> we just had the Pan African Global Trade Investment Conference, and uh, I actually I just met with the uh, Ag Secretary yesterday. Uh, we're mm -hmm. we're in good shape for it to open in 2020. Okay, super awesome, awesome, yeah, and. Um, and why don't I why don't I just read um uh, uh Baba um Akinsanya's um bio since I have it up and then we could start talking. How's that how does that go? How's that okay? Okay. All right. Yes. So I mentioned that um that he has an exhibit um opening in February. The exact dates are February second through july fifth, twenty twenty. So put that in your calendar. Um so born um uh, Baba Akinsanya Cabone, born as Mark Teamer in Sacramento, California. Akinsanya Cabone is a, is a former Marine, Black Panther, and art professor. Um, stricken with polio as a child, he turned to drawing for comfort and ultimately his therapy. He recalls in his adolescence frequent visits to the Crocker Art Museum, which fascinated him and showed him the human potential in creating art. He's he served a tour of duty in Vietnam with the United States Marine Corps from 1966 to 1968. Shortly thereafter, he created the Black Panther Coloring Book to bring attention to racial inequality and social injustice. Despite being only semi-literate in his youth, Cabone went on to earn his Master's of Fine Arts from California State University, Fresno. 
In more recent years, he was featured in War Torn, 1861-2010, an HBO documentary screened at the Pentagon on post-traumatic stress disorder for in veterans. Today, Gabon's work is as rich and varied as his personal history, expressed through drawings, paintings, bronze sculptures, and ceramics. Um, the exhibition, I'm reading from the uh, the bio. I'm not going to read uh, about that. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the first part, all of this is from the Crocker Art Museum, uh, and you can I have a link to that uh, on the show uh, description. So welcome again to both of you. Um, and uh yeah, so um so Kubaka, why don't you why don't you start and, and then we will segue into um uh, more more commentary about the Buffalo Soldiers specifically um by um Baba Akinsanya. Well okay, uh, um Go ahead, Michael, sorry. Okay, yeah, the um the Veterans Day weekend uh this year at the Sequoia National Park, uh, brought together people from all over the United States to honor and create the Colonel Charles Young Memorial Highway, which is uh, Three Rivers, California, which is near Visalia off of Highway 99. And Sequoia National Park uh, is a very beautiful place, and you, you can't do it. Uh, justice unless you see it. it. It has the largest living organisms on earth. These trees, uh, the sequoia redwood grove, um, I mean, they're the biggest living organisms on planet earth. You, you can't describe how big these trees are. And the giant grove, as it's called, was first protected uh, by Colonel Charles Young, built fences around these big trees uh, because they were built roads uh, very steep, uh, very uh, dangerous roads to drive on uh, that are still in use today. But people can now access these largest trees in the world. And now the entrance into the park is called the Colonel Charles Young Memorial Highway as of uh, two days ago. A very, very profound ceremony with the uh, park director for the entire United States, she was there. Uh, Sister Kennard, who Dr. Joy Kennard, who runs the uh, Colonel Charles Young uh, State Park in Ohio, she flew out the Young family, uh, Renetta and uh, her daughter, uh, both attorneys in New York City, very prominent sisters, very fine sisters, I might add. Um, from New York, and and you know just a host of dignitaries. Uh, Shelton Johnson, who represents the Buffalo Soldiers at Yosemite, he was there, uh, and, and there was a number of other dignitaries, assemblymen who authored the legislation, uh, assemblyman Devin Mathis, uh, and, and, and many others. And, and so it, it was very touching uh, for. Uh, for me to receive uh, an award on behalf of the, the, I'd say maybe 20 different Buffalo Soldier organizations that we've been working with over the last uh, five years, uh, it's just it's just a blessing and honor to know that the legacy of you know this Pan African warrior 
is still providing examples for the world. So, so the brother was born enslaved in Kentucky um, in 1864. His father, uh, you know, uh, this time ran away to freedom and was not captured, but was um, embraced by Union soldiers, and he fought as a U.S. colored troop. And that that example is what Colonel Charles Young uh, followed. He was an excellent student. Um, and he was able to take the exam to get into West Point. And, you know, he was the third black man to graduate through uh, West Point Academy, the top military college on planet Earth. And uh, his expertise was, you know, punctuated by uh, his engineering skills. He was having challenges passing his engineering course, you know, due to systemic institutional racism. But he was rewarded for his uh, perseverance by being taught engineering by the man who built the Panama Canal. So he was a, a, a excellent engineer uh, to the point where everywhere he went, uh, he was able to excel in his uh, endeavors, building roads, roads, bridges, uh, all throughout the world. Uh, he, he served uh, in, in in Mexico. He served in Cuba. He served in uh, the Philippines. He was the first military attache in Liberia. And on a special assignment, he was killed in Nigeria. And there's, there's, there's a, well, let's just say we haven't been able to get the uh, declassified story on exactly how he died in 1922 in Nigeria. But what is uh, noteworthy is that's in 1922, that's when the Nigerian youth movement was established, and that led to where, you know, Britain had to yield, and uh, Nigeria today is an independent nation. So, I mean, it's my personal belief that uh, he is one of the founding fathers of the independence of Nigeria because of his uh, stature and his, I mean, his black man as an officer in Nigeria, and young Nigerians saw that, and, you know, because of his perseverance uh, through the American system, uh, some of the Nigerians saw that and took that. So we, we have uh, documentation of who the people he were able to influence in Nigeria. We're, we're going to go down that story a, a little bit uh, next year. But the highway uh, dedication was Veterans Day, November 11th, and uh, I'm thankful that uh, Wanda is helping us share that story because the California aspect of the Buffalo Soldiers is a profound story. It's not widely known. There's 500 Buffalo Soldiers buried at the Presidio of San Francisco. Uh, the Buffalo Soldiers helped build the Presidio. They helped build the Presidio in Monterey. Uh, they rode horses all the way to Yosemite. They helped build Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks. People from all over the world come to both those parks, and vast majority of them that that are global tourists have no clue that these black men, uh, Buffalo soldiers, uh, preserved and were the original. I should say the original were some of the original uh, park rangers. The, the, the military was assigned to protect those parks, and these black men did more documented did more than most. Uh, under the leadership of Colonel Charles Young. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And um, so on, on Monday, Veterans Day, uh, November 11th, 
I was at the Presidio and, um, you know, overlooking the Golden Gate, shaded by cypress and washed by fog, I'm reading the brochure from the Visitor Center, uh, are the headstones of 450 black soldiers of the 9th and 10th and 24th and 25th Infantry. And and I look for um, uh, Sergeant William Tompkins' um, uh, headstone, and he uh, was awarded the Medal of Honor for bravery and valor in the Spanish-American War. Uh, he and some other soldiers went and rescued, I think, 20 stranded um, soldiers. Nobody wanted to go get them because of the risk. And so they went and got them, and everyone returned um, safely. You know, there were a few, you know, there were some wounds because there was, you know, um, uh, they were being, you know, fired upon, but everybody survived. And um, and so anyway, it was, uh, yeah, it was really, really just, it was just so moving, you know, to be there with all of these ancestors. Um, and, um, and uh, yeah, so hopefully, you know, next time, next year, um, there'll be a lot more people there, you know, honoring these men. And um, and I was gonna read a little bit of um, of something that's on this uh, this brochure, which you can get when you go to the visitor center at the Presidio. Um, uh, it says um, Charles Young, uh, 1868 to 1922, was the third, as you mentioned, African American to graduate from West Point. During his long and prestigious career, he commanded the 9th, 10th Cavalry Companies and served as a military attaché. He was the first. Um, black officer to attain the rank of full colonel. In March 2013, President Barack Obama established the Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers National Monument to honor Colonel Young's leadership story and the experience of the Buffalo Soldiers during difficult and racially tense times. And um, so while we were in California, um, you know, you were at the Sequoia National Park and, um, and, and I was at the Presidio, in um in Kentucky at the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage and Black Veterans um they honored Colonel Charles Young on Veterans Day and um uh and Mr. Uh, Charles Blatcher III who is chairman of the National Coalition of Black Veteran Organizations he um he was there and um and there was there's a mark a marquette in the Kennedy Center for African American Heritage of uh Colonel Charles Young and so um so anyway um he wrote this really really wonderful wonderful article which I'm not going to read all of but um he uh he mentions that you know he talks about it, and I think I think we spoke about it how um uh how um I guess was it lieutenant Colonel, lieutenant colonel Charles Young was um he was de- he was retired uh, he, he was forced into a medical retirement, and what happened um, with this medical retirement? Um, he, uh, while he was waiting, he appealed it to the War Department uh, because he wanted to serve in the war, um, and so um, and so he waited for a year for the reply. And on June 6, 18, 1918, he rode on horseback and walked 497 miles from Wilberforce, Ohio where he taught at the university there, to Washington, D.C., to prove his fitness to be returned to active duty. And he was returned to active duty on November 6, 1918, and the war ended five days later with the signing of the armistice. And and by keeping him out of the war, I'm quoting, 
um, it denied him the opportunity of advancement to the rank of brigadier general. And, and we know that um, the first African um, person to reach that rank was um, uh, I'm drawing a blank now. Um, who is the um, the first person to to get the rank of brigadier general? Because um, actually, um, <laughs> uh, Colonel Charles Young um, tutored him in math. Yeah, uh, Benjamin Davis, both his yeah, uh, yeah, Benjamin O. Davis, right? Directly, uh, their commission and their uh, stature is directly related to Colonel Charles Young, um, mm-hmm. you know, teaching them. And that, that's what he was doing at Wilberforce is creating mm-hmm. the military science uh, program at that, that university. And so he, he, today, uh, General Williams is a superintendent at West Point. And all of this is directly related to, to Colonel Charles Young. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, effort to make him Brigadier General. My personal opinion is you, you're <clears throat> you're spending a lot of time and energy fighting the system instead of, uh, you know, encouraging men and women uh, to take a look at military science and, you know, creating another generation of Buffalo soldiers, youth Buffalo soldiers all over the planet to be engineers, to be able to, perturb, to, to preserve and protect, uh, you know, the environment be able to, you know, walk down the streets in your community safely. So if we focus mm-hmm. on the, the the positive attributes, the way the man lived his life, and quite frankly, if we even say his wife's name and look at her legacy, uh, I think we'll be better served. Uh, there's a reason why there's no museum in, in San Francisco at the Presidio. There's a reason why, you know, the trail in California um, you know, at some point we got to stop fighting and start, you know, being positive and building instead of using, you know, a great legacy as something to say, hey, yeah, it was racism. Yeah, he should have, could have, would have. But this is, I mean, the man was born enslaved. And mm-hmm. anybody that thinks that, that, you know, systemic institutional racism does not exist is, you know, mentally challenged. So we have an opportunity to talk about, you know, the fact that the man spoke seven languages that most people don't talk about. We could talk about mm-hmm. how, uh, you know, he was a military attache. What was he doing in Haiti? What was he doing in Santo Domingo? What was he doing in Liberia for five years? What was? How did he die in Nigeria? You know, what was he doing? How did how did that impact, you know, the the men and women who ended up liberating Nigeria from British control? So, you know, I, I'm more interested in, in focusing on the positive aspect and how it can change our lives today because we don't have very good trade and commerce with Nigeria today. And he was talking about trade and commerce with Africa, you know, in 19, uh, <clears throat> in the 19 or early 1915, 1916, and how to use these ports and how to have railroads built and how to have roads built that we need to be doing today. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. And and it's really amazing, you know, that besides being an outstanding, you know, soldier and leader, educator and diplomat, he was also a composer, you know, and a musician. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, the man was so well-rounded. And you think, wow, he did all this, and you think, well, he must have lived to be a ripe old age. And he actually didn't live, you know, to be that old. I mean, um, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, it's really yeah, great he, sort he, of living. Yeah, he, his his story is just amazing. I mean, he was <clears throat> in the swamps. I mean, we talking about rural bush Africa uh, in, you know, 1920s. And, you know, he was the only time he was shot was in Liberia. And he died in Nigeria while it was protected and supposedly uh, part of the British crown. Um, you know, I'm sure that parts were, but I'm sure there was parts of Nigeria that were very rural. And here this brother is riding through with a uniform, probably not with a uniform when he was in uh, Nigeria, but he certainly was com- in command. And he certainly was, um, you know, an American soldier in British Nigeria today. Um, and that's where he ended up dying. And there's not good information on, on what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you before before we um, we uh, ask um, uh, Baba Akin San, Sanya um, to tell us, you know, more about the Buffalo Soldier history Um which you know we were talking about last night, um, which is really fascinating. Um, what what um what drew you to the to serve in the military, uh, Kabaka? Well, uh, it was really uh, part of a family legacy. Yeah, and I have mm-hmm. two other brothers, and <clears throat> um, I really wanted to leave Sacramento, uh, and so I, you know, joined the army against. Uh, you know the the best wishes of you know many of my family members, but uh, I was able to um, see a little bit of around the United States and 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 have a good skill. I was uh, trained to fix medical machines, and so you know when I got out of the regular army, I was in the Army Reserves and was able to spend <clears throat> many weekends at the Presidio. Um, fixing medical machines and, you know, enjoying a weekend in the Bay Area, which was always fun. And so, but I never was told about the Buffalo Soldiers' profound impact. Uh, it may have been there. I just didn't see it, and nobody shared it with me. But when I found out about it uh, three years ago, you know, I've mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've been on a, a, a Charles Young um, really high because the things that he's done, are some of the things that we've been attempting to do and some of the things that we've done over the last, uh, you know, 20 years, uh, teaching Pan-African history. Uh, <clears throat> his, his family still owns a, a large farm in Ohio, uh, farming, uh, looking at how we can expand uh, transportation systems. Well, that's what he did. He built roads. He built helped build ports. And so that's what we're embarking on doing uh, as we uh, expand California trade and commerce the exact same thing he was doing, um, you know, a hundred years ago. Mhm. Wow. Yeah. So, um, Baba Akinsanya, thanks for your patience. So, um, what drew you to um, to the military service, and you know, sort of were you sort of treading in the footsteps of your ancestors? Um, so, what? Well, you, most of my what was the calling? most of my ancestors. <laughs> I had I had uncles in the Army, Navy. I had a couple of uncles that were in the Marine Corps. And uh, mm-hmm. I had an older brother that was in the Marine Corps. 
but it wasn't I, I I don't think I could have joined the military because I was illiterate. I graduated high school mm. reading at a second grade level. So mm. I probably wouldn't have passed the test. But in nineteen sixty six I was drafted into the Marine Corps. Mm. I, I thought I was going in the army, but when I got to the induction center in Oakland, they had us count off and I was one of the ones that was the number that went to the Marine Corps. So I was in the Marine Corps for two years. Um, and I, 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 I guess it was good because most of the brothers in the Marine Corps could read, and they were uh, pretty down with the history, African history. And they were putting a lot of us other brothers that were illiterate, they were giving us history and teaching us. We used to have soul sessions where they would give us information on everything historical, and that's what uh, sparked my interest in in history, and that's where I heard about the Buffalo Soldiers and also the Black Panther Party. I heard about mm-hmm. those things while I was in Vietnam, and um, we would have discussions at our soul sessions in Vietnam about, I guess, what what made it interesting is with all of us were from different parts of America. We had brothers from New York, from Cleveland, from St. Louis, from Chicago, from everywhere. And we were all together, and we would get letters from home. And in the soul sessions, we would talk about the letters we got, <clears throat> the fact that each every week somebody had a friend or a relative of theirs from another city was killed by the police, and a gun was planted on near the body or on the body. And we were getting all these stories every week, so we were very clear on the abuse that was taking place with uh, with the, with the, with the brothers. Uh, and once I once I uh, got out of the Marine Corps, I ended up in the Black Panther Party as a lieutenant of culture for the Sacramento chapter. But um, I, my father, was telling me about the Buffalo Soldiers because. He had an older brother that was a Buffalo soldier. And um, that's when I, I got a real interest in doing some research. That's when I discovered that in Africa they had a cavalry called the Bornu Cavalrymen. And they were, they were uh, instructed to patrol the coast of West Africa, the whole Guinea coast, all the way from Cameroons up to uh, Guinea. And um, what they what their assignment was, they were supposed to any any slavers they caught, they would release the the captives, and they would behead the, the slavers. And this is what they did. Now some of these some of these brothers, some of the Bornu cavalrymen, were also captured and taken as slaves. That happened too. And um, these guys were so knowledgeable about horses. They knew how to breed them. They knew how to ride them. They knew how to train them. They could do things on horses that was basically human impossible. I don't think nobody can do that nowadays. But they would basically live with these horses and had so much knowledge about horses. The ones that were captured and taken as slaves, and they ended up in uh, the United States and the the Caribbean, uh, these brothers taught their children about horses. So when the Civil War broke out and some of the brothers were in the Army and their their uh, commanding officers found out how much they knew 
about horses and how to train them, they put them in the cavalry. And so came the ninth and 10th cavalry. Um, and, and see, a lot of people don't relate the Buffalo soldiers uh, to the Bornu cavalrymen in Africa, but that's where it started. And there's still a lot of research to be done, and I challenge young people to uh, do some research on the Bornu cavalrymen. You know, I mean, I've done a lot of a lot of reading. I've traveled to Africa about 14 times uh, doing research, but not just on <laughs> not just on the Bornu cavalrymen of the Buffalo Soldiers. But, you know, my interest was art, so that's what I was really uh, studying, African art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you spell um, Bornu um, Calverman? How do you spell the Bornu part? Bornu is B-O-R-N-U. Okay. And and, and when you, in your you travels... Can, oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. You can also look up uh, uh, the, the different horse breeds in Africa. Because they had oh. several different horse breeds in Africa, and uh, I mean the, the Moors, they were connected with the, the Bornu cavalrymen. So all these, okay. and you know, it's just so much we gotta we gotta find out. We gotta get information on. Mhm. Yeah. So um, in your travels, when you were um, uh, doing the research on the Bornu cavalrymen. Where did you find out most of or some of your information about them? Like which countries in Africa? Oh, Nigeria, Ghana, um, Nigeria. Okay. Mali. Um, uh-huh. uh, the French, the French-speaking countries was a little more difficult because I really couldn't get that much information in uh, Ivory Coast and Senegal. But you know, I, I I did I noticed the horses that they had. It wasn't like everybody was riding around on horses. Horses mm-hmm. were something that was reserved for people that were wealthy. If you had a oh. horse, you was somebody special. So mm-hmm. in African culture and African art, a horse was a symbol of power. Mm-hmm. So, and then you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's not it's not that so much of that information. I think you got to realize that we have a lot of history that none of us are aware of in this country. I like to Kikuyu, the rebellion at the head in Kenya led by Dida and Komati Wachuru. I mean I I, I studied with the uh with the Kikuyu and they put me down with Dida and Komati, you know. And these were revolutionaries and I guess one of my biggest interests was, was the, the different revolutionary movements that took place in Africa and in the Caribbean. Mhm. You know, and you find these these brothers with these skills, with these skills of horsemen. You find them all over Africa and the Caribbean, and in the United States in in different parts. Yeah, you you mentioned that you actually have. Um, I told you that I was I participated in the recent um, slave rebellion reenactment in um, in New Orleans along the River Road. The German um, exactly. Uh, plantations and um this past weekend on um, November 8th 9th however the uh the original um rebellion insurrection march um occurred in January um 1811 and you said you have ancestors that were there that participated Yeah I have a I have a great great grandfather 
that was actually captured him and one of his sons. He had four sons, and him and one of his sons that were captured were beheaded, mm-hmm. and their heads were put on fence posts along the river yeah. road. And, you know, I mean, that was, and this is a slave rebellion that's never talked about. This was the biggest slave rebellion this country ever had. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's right. And and when you study that rebellion, you know, you see how important it is uh, when you're organizing to be able to follow orders. You know, that rebellion was put down, but a lot of people had to get out of Louisiana. And uh, my family, uh, they were the teamers at the time. They had to leave Louisiana, and I know that they went up River Road to Natchez and crossed off into Mississippi. And uh, a couple of the brothers went to uh, South Carolina, and I got a hookup with the teamers in South Carolina. And I know that um, my grandfather and his and my my grandfather and his father, they were in Mississippi. They settled in Mississippi. But it was, it, I mean, there's so many stories that you can get when you pay attention to what your 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 elders say. And I've got all kind of information, all kind of history, family history. And I guess getting that family history kind of understand what's boiling in your own blood because, you know, I, <laughs> I, I've had a tremendous history myself in terms of uh, being in the Black Panther Party. Uh, being arrested for murder in Sacramento and sitting on death row in the Sacramento County Jail for a year fighting a murder case. Um, but I, and I found out that my father, who had all this history, he wouldn't tell me none of it when I was little. Because when I was 15, I asked him, uh, and he wouldn't tell me. So once I got off death row and I ended up going to St. Louis to visit him, that's when he started giving me all the history. And I guess a lot of a lot of it is not stuff that people would be proud of because a lot of the guys were outlaws, and my uncle was an outlaw. And my daddy said that the reason these guys were outlaws is because they couldn't get jobs doing nothing. So they robbed banks, and they robbed stagecoaches and trains and stole cows, and this is stuff that they did. <laughs> but you know that's not a that's not a kind of proud thing, you know. Uh, they had a my uncle's name was Buck, and his mother's name was Maylie Buck, and uh, him and my grandfather, her and my grandfather weren't married, so she couldn't name him Buck, and he was only fifteen when uh, the girl got pregnant, and you know he and his father wouldn't let him marry her. So what happened is um, she she had the baby by herself on a different farm and worked as a sharecropper in Mississippi for 10 years on that farm until she left with her son, who they called Buck. And, and this is really interesting, and I'm trying to find this out, uh, but he was such an outlaw when he grew up because he watched the lynching of his mother and about 30, 40 other uh, people that were on a sharecropping plantation that left the plantations and got caught. And when they got caught, she asked one of the men to lift her son, Buck, up in this tree. And he raised the boy up to get a limb, 
and she told him to climb up in that tree as high as he could go and don't come down and don't say nothing, whatever you hear or see. And he said, yes, ma'am. So he climbed on up in that tree, and he stayed up in that tree for two days. And he watched as they captured all these Africans who had tried to flee. They stripped them off naked, tied their hands behind their back. They raped five of the women, and then they tied ropes around their necks and threw them over trees and pulled them up in the trees with the horses and left their bodies hanging in the trees until they died. And this 10-year-old boy watched that. And the second day, some black folks came by and cut them down and was burying them, and that's when he got out of the tree. One of the men put him on his horse and took him back to um, my grandfather. And uh, and my grandfather raised him until he was 16, and then he ran off and joined, uh, joined the Army. That's when he got with the Buffalo Soldiers. And I don't know what last name he was using or how to track him. The only thing I know about him is that they called him Buck, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a movie that Sidney Porter and Harry Belafonte did called Buck yeah, and the Buck Preacher. Buck and the Preacher, right. Yeah, and I had some historians tell me that they think that was based off my Uncle Buck because he was notorious. I mean, he killed so many people. <laughs> uh but you know the people that he killed, they, like he fought in he fought in Cuba with with the with the Buffalo Soldiers, and also the 125th Infantry was there too, and they were also Africans. And then they sent them to the Philippines, and he fought in the Philippines. And then when they sent them back, when they came back from the Philippines, they were in San Francisco at the Presidio, and they they sent them to work. Some of them in Yosemite, and some of them in the Sequoia National Forest. And he was up there, uh, and he told my daddy that they was working them like slaves in Yosemite. And he said he wasn't no slave. He said he was a fighting man. So he stole a horse and split. <laughs> and he rode that horse until the horse dropped dead. But he was about starving by then. And uh, he was eating the horse when the Indians found him. And they, and they took him and they got him well, you know. And... uh I mean, that, that whole story is just, and when I saw that, that movie, Buck and the Preacher, when I first saw it, I didn't realize uh, the implications of that and the fact that you just have a man they call Buck, and everybody knew him. I mean, he was notorious all over that area. But the one thing that happened is he married this Indian uh, sister, Indian that found him. He married his sister, and she was eight months pregnant. And they had went to sell some cows because they was doing that. And when they came back, they had found her dead. Eight months pregnant, she had been raped and murdered. And they they found the guys who did it. It was 15 guys who did it. All of them didn't rape her. Only three of them actually raped her. But they caught each one of them one by one, him and that Indian, and they tortured them. And they, they tortured them until they confessed and told on all the rest of them. And they, they they went by and they caught each one of them one by one and tortured them. And they all said that some of them told that they didn't have nothing to do with it. Well, their question was, well, did you do anything to help her? And when they said no, they said, well, that's hard, son. You got to go. And that's just the way that was. Hmm. Where, where was that, um, that your, um, I, I, what, because Buck, your, he was your great 
great great uncle or great uncle or who is this? Who is this? Buck. Well, Buck. Who was? Oh, Buck was my Buck was my was actually my father's brother, but he was he was twenty years older than my father. Mm-hmm. Because okay. um, when they were coming out of when they were coming out of Louisiana, uh, he was I think his Joseph that was that's my grandfather Joseph Teamer. He was fifteen, and th- th- this girl got pregnant on the way. I don't. I guess I don't know how old she was, but her name was Maylee Buck, and that's all I that's all I have on her is her name was Maylee Buck, and she was lynched with the rest of them. Right. You know. Yeah. But, so uh, so Buck and, so Buck is your is your great uncle. He is my uncle. He's my father's brother. Oh, your father's brother. Oh, dang. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's my father's okay. older brother. <laughs> but he was, yeah. you know, he was 20 years older than my father. Okay, gotcha. That's why there was, yeah. you know, that's why I was so so different. Yeah, so where where um was I'm just trying to figure out like where where was his wife um killed? Like was it in California? Where where did it happen? No, I think that was either in Oklahoma or Texas. It was somewhere somewhere around there. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was in even wow. Oklahoma, Texas, because they were they were living in uh, Oklahoma, I think, territory. I think there was a lot of mm-hmm. Indians living there, and mm-hmm. a lot of outlaws. It was like the Badlands. Mhm. Wow. Like Badlands. So, so how how do how do these stories show up? You know, in your work, um, like you have, um, I'm looking at. You know, you you draw, you paint, you have bronze sculptures, you have ceramics, and this particular, you know, the exhibit that's going to be opening next year um, uh, is going to focus on your terracotta sculptures, um, yes, uh, which are fired using the Western style of raku technique. And I wonder if you yes, could talk a little bit about about your, about your work, and and then also you could talk more about your um, your role as the um, the Minister of Culture in in the Sacramento area for the Black Panther Party and that coloring book that you made and okay and will that and will any of that be a part and then um, third part sorry if it's too much I'll, I'll I'm taking notes on what I'm asking um, um, Brother Kubaka mentioned a series of paintings that you've done um, on the Buffalo Soldiers I think is that, well is that I've, correct? I've done a I've done a series that deal with slavery and um, oh, okay. Africans in, in Western culture or in the West, like mm-hmm. all the black cowboys, you know, because my uncle knew a lot of them and he wrote with a lot of them. One of the ones that I know for sure was Isom Dart. Um, I think he had another name, but Isom Dart was one of his best friends. So when, um, I started talking about that, and and the the and the coloring book. I think that people should realize that I was illiterate when I graduated from high school. I couldn't read or write, and the the problem with that was I recognized there was a lot of other brothers and sisters that couldn't read or write. And since I got this history from a lot of those Marines, those older brothers that was putting me down when I was in the Marine Corps, since I got a lot of that history, I started. Uh, drawing and 
and that's when I came up with the idea of of the coloring book, but it was supposed to just be a history book. And it was a history book for people that couldn't read. So I mm-hmm. figured that if they saw the pictures, they would get the history. And it started with Africa, and it ended up with slavery and slave revolts. And oh, um, nice. the problem with it was that when I had the captions in there and I took it to Oakland, uh, Bobby Seale felt that we shouldn't call our people Africans because black people ain't ready to be Africans yet. Well, I disagreed, but, you know, he was the chairman, so they took out all the <laughs> all the words African and put in black, and that was something oh. that I disagreed with. But that's mm. the way it came out. Um, but, you know, I, I had a, <laughs> a copy of that original uh, coloring book that somebody just got a gallery in Sacramento, on 20th and J Street, he's talking about doing an exhibit of the coloring book. Oh, nice. Um, and showing it in 2021. So, okay. um, I, you know, we'll just see what happens with that. But um, the, the exhibit that we have at the Crocker is going to be all ceramic sculpture, and it deals with African spiritual deities, and also it has some historical characters, like one of them is Bass Reeves. Bass Reeves was the first U.S. Marshal, African, African-American west of the Mississippi, and he was one of the baddest cats that ever lived. Matter of fact, they say they based the Lone Ranger on Bass Reeves. And also mm. they say that uh, the, the Matt Dillon, <laughs> uh, Dodge City, they, they kind of say that that came from the idea of Bass Reeves, too. He was the U.S. Marshal that captured over 3,000 felons. Mm. And he was in, like, 14 shootouts with, with uh, Desperados. I mean, those gun battles that Matt Dillon does yeah, every right. time it comes on. Well, Bass mm-hmm. Reeves actually did that. <laughs> wow. I mean, he was he was a bad dude. Bass Reeves was he was, he was, <laughs> he was a cold-blooded character. Well, one of the sculptures is of Bass Reeves. Then there's <laughs> another one of, um, of um, what's his name, John Randall, the Buffalo Soldier. Mm-hmm. You know, John Randall was a was a soldier, and that's when the Indians saw how he fought. That's when they told him he fights like he fights like a buffalo when he's cornered and wounded. What mm-hmm. what happened with um, with John Randall? John Randall was sent on a, to guide some guys on a hunting party, and they went out to hunt. I don't know what they was hunting. They they never said, but there was seventy Cheyenne coming over the hill. And they were warriors. And John Randall told these guys, let's get out of here. So they tried to get out of here, but the other two guys got killed. And they were chasing John Randall, and they shot him in the shoulder with a, with a pistol. And then they shot his horse out from under him, and he crawled into a ravine, and, and uh, the, the, the Cheyenne surrounded him. And he killed so many of them, but they, they wounded him from the shoulder with the bullet. They had 11 arrows in him also. And they say that the Indians were telling all the rest of the Indians after they saw how he fought, they said he fights like the buffalo when he's cornered and wounded. And every time we hit him with an arrow, he would get more strong. He gets stronger and more fierce. <laughs> I mean, that's the way they talked about this cat. So, But oh, there's a wow. sculpture of him there. Yeah, so where, where um, John Randall, was he, where was he, where was he at? Um, and then also... Um, uh, Bass Reeves, where what part? You know what? Like, what I'm not, what state? 
uh, Bass Reeves was in Oklahoma, I believe. Uh, okay. But he was well. What he what he was he Bass Reeves was actually a slave, and oh. he fought on the side of the South because his oh, master really? was a colonel. His master was mm-hmm. a colonel in the southern in the southern uh, the Confederate Army. And mm-hmm. what happened was after the after the war, him and his master were playing cards or something, and he got into a fight with his master and beat him up. So, mm-hmm. so he had to leave. So when he <laughs> left, he went out. He went out into Oklahoma, which was Indian territory, and there were five different Indian languages that he learned fluently because he lived with the Indians, mm-hmm. and that's why he was so good when he became a a marshal because he knew how to speak the languages of the Indians and he could go all over Oklahoma, that territory that was called the Badlands, that nobody wanted to really go in, but he could go in there with no problem. Because he, he knew how to speak, he knew how to communicate. He knew how to communicate with all the Indians, and plus he wasn't scared of nobody. He was a big hmm. dude. He was about 6'3", I think. <laughs> he okay. wasn't no joke. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Wow. So tell us more about your exhibit. I noticed that you have, um, are these the uh, figures that are on horses? Because you have some figures on horseback. Yeah, those figures on horseback are what they call equestrian figures in African art. And whenever there's a figure on horseback in African culture, the fact that, that that the person is on a horse, that gives him a power. There's a power associated with that person. And, you know, I have to explain things uh, to people about the exhibits because when you look at these pieces, the heads are large. And in African art, the reason that the heads are usually large in African sculptures is because the head is associated with the ori or the brain or the spirit. All those mm-hmm. are the three things that make a man uh, different than other animals. So the man... His head, his brain is how he can control an elephant or control a horse or a camel or whatever he's dominating to ride. He's not as strong as them, but but uh, the intellect of the man and the woman uh, give them the capability of controlling other animals that are far stronger than them physically. So Mm -hmm. that's why the heads are, are, are larger, because the head is important. Right, yeah. Huh. So tell us more about your exhibit. Um, uh, Kubaka, what? you're really quiet. Do you have any comments? Well, no, no. I'm. You can imagine for I'd say about 20 years now, I've been at yeah. the, uh, the feet of Akasanya, and uh, <laughs> I'm still there. So no, I. This is. In fact, when we get off the phone, I'll probably we probably have lunch somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, his his story. Um, is what should be documented. He's born in Sacramento, and for whatever reason, we have yet to figure out the strategy on putting together uh, a for real first-class African museum in the capital of the state of California. And uh, as you can see, just his personal story uh, mm-hmm. is will fill up a museum, just as it fills oh, up yeah. Gallery Capone and Long Beach. But we have mm-hmm. all of these hidden figures of African history, many of them walking around with us. We just don't know. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'll i be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Baba. I can sign you. Well, Continue. The, the, work, 
the work that's in the museum that it's going to be in the museum is only sculpture, ceramic sculpture. Mm -hmm. But I also oh, have oil paintings, and I have hundreds yeah. and hundreds of oil paintings. And then I have watercolors. And the watercolor series, uh, I don't really show that because it's not it's not the kind of work you show. It's the kind of work mm -hmm. that people uh, see as a historical thing because a lot of the things that I learned from elders, like mm -hmm. one of the things that they would say is that whenever they tortured uh, people on a plantation, they would make sure all the pregnant women watched. For mm. some reason, they had the belief that if a pregnant woman watched torture or lynching or when they cut a woman's stomach open and tore the baby out, if a pregnant woman watched this, they felt that the babies wouldn't come out uh, rebellious. Now, I don't understand mm -hmm. the logic of that, but this is stuff that I learned from elders. I pay a lot of attention to old folks. Um, I mean, it was an elder in St. Louis when I was 15 that taught me about the Master Lock Company because I never knew that Master Lock got they started making slave shackles. <clears throat> and this old man, uh, we called him Mr. Napachin. He was 83, and I was 15. And I used to sit out and drink coffee with him in the morning and a guy's battery got stolen that lived in the same apartment complex, and he went and bought a, a new battery, and he bought a chain and a lock to put on his hood. Mm. And when Mr. Nabuchin saw that man's lock, he got mad, and he started trying to hit that man with his cane. <laughs> he was yelling at him. And I was 15, and I was kind of scared. So I asked my mm -hmm. daddy. I said, Daddy, what's wrong with him? And my daddy said, just leave him alone right now. Wait until tomorrow. So the next day I sat down with him. We was drinking coffee, and I asked him why he got mad at that man for, for uh, trying to lock up his, his battery so nobody wouldn't steal it. And he told me, I told that nigga not to buy no master lock. Then people got started making slave shackles for our people. That's how they got rich. He said that mm. when he was a boy, they used to have signs all over the South, buy a master lock. It is as though the master himself were guarding your slave. Mm. Wow. Can you believe that? And then wow. during the Garvey movement, he said during the Garvey movement, uh, they they had them take all them signs down and destroy them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and and you know, I I was fortunate because I found a modern day shackles with Master Lock mm -hmm. written right on them, and I have that oh. in my collection in the museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know, wow. I, I find that you pay attention to old Africans and old Native Americans, and that's mm -hmm. where I get a lot of my history especially the Alamo. I mean, we sit up and we think about Davy Crockett and all the so-called Alamo. Well, mm -hmm. the reason that took place was because the Mexicans had told those guys they couldn't bring those slaves into Texas. They said, they couldn't. you can't have your slave. You can have the land, but you got to work it yourself. And them mm -hmm. guys said, well, you know what? They can't tell us what we can do with our niggas. So what happened was Santa Ana came marching on them, and they, they all held up at the Alamo with their slaves. And they had mm -hmm. these Africans chained up at the Alamo. And when Santa Ana defeated them, they released all the Africans. And they mm -hmm. executed the people that were holding them. And these were just poor white boys from different uh, southern cities that never had anything. When they got these land grants in Texas, they felt that they'd bring their slaves in to work the land. 
mean, you got a bunch of slaves. You can work thousands of acres of land, you know? But right. the Mexicans said, no, we abolished slavery a long time ago, and you can't have them there. Mm-hmm. So I try to push these stories to young people so they'll know that we have never had an antagonistic relationship with indigenous people, Mexicans, mm-hmm. Indians, or anything. All of our relationships with them has always been positive because when we used to run off from enslaved slave plantations, they were the ones who used to take care of us. And mm-hmm. if you talk to Native Americans, I used to talk a lot with Chief Longwalker of the Lakota up at Red Wind. We'd sit and talk, and he'd tell me all kinds of stories uh, about our relationship with, with African Americans and indigenous Americans. And then that's where I learned about James Beckworth. James Beckworth mm-hmm. was one of the best scouts yeah. they ever had, but he was his father was a Buffalo soldier, his mother was a Native American, and Custer right. tried to get James Beckworth to lead him to the Little Bighorn. And James Beckworth knew Custer's reputation for killing women and children. So he wasn't taking that boy up there where where these women and children was he knew. So he led Custer around in a big circle several times so that the Indians got ready for him. And Custer, when he realized that Beckworth was leading him, you know, in in circles, he told him, he said, you know what, when I get back to the fort, you're getting court-martialed. So he sent him back to the fort, and he was going to court-martial when he got back. So you all know the rest of the story. Hmm. Yeah, and there's the backward path here, you know, um, going, um, is it going toward Nevada? Is that on the California side, the uh, backward path? Backward path? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it even goes up through Yosemite. Right. Yeah. No, Beckwith Pass. Pass is uh, up by Marysville, up through the. It's the lowest elevation over Sierra Nevadas, and it's just north of of uh, Lake Lake Tahoe, and it goes down mm-hmm. into Marysville. <clears throat> and there's a mm-hmm. town up there, Beckwith. Yeah, there's. I mean, right. there's so many stories. There's so many beautiful mm-hmm. stories. Yeah, well, yeah they, they well, really see, are. You, mm-hmm. you don't get these stories unless you talk to old folks. And I listen, I've been listening to old folks since I was a kid. I love listening to old folks tell stories because they got well, all the history. Keep, I'm glad you keep uh, listening to old folks because I want you to become one yourself. <laughs> become, become, become what? Hey, I look, I'm already an old folk. folk. You ain't, you I ain't think no I realize I'm already an old folk. I'm an old folk now myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking um, – um, I was thinking about, you know, our our great uh, journalist and historian, uh, Delilah, and also activist, Delilah Beasley, and, um, you know, that this is the 100th or centennial of her her um, her essay, um, uh, Slavery, Negro Slavery, uh, or Slavery in California. And uh, I don't want to let all, our audience know that that, that particular essay is available. Um, it's a free. Uh, it's, it's on JSTOR, uh, S-T-O-R, and you can read it. Um, and she talks about, you know, slavery in California. You know, after, um, you know, the original um, um, founders of this, this, this uh, of of um, of the state, you know, Mexico. You know, when it when um, when Mexico lost California, Texas, Arizona, um, what was free. Um, ended up, you know, being being um, slave, a slave state, and um, and that slavery actually lasted longer here. In 1865, you know, de facto slavery was still happening until um, 1874. So, and you um, know what? 
Hmm. I'm glad you said that because my daughter just saw the um, the Harry Tubman uh, movie. Yeah, isn't that awesome? And yeah, she really called me movie. and we were talking. Big Barton? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful movie. Oh, okay. Well, she was telling me about it, and I said, okay. And then she said, she said, but slavery wasn't out here in California. I said, yes, it was, baby. You know, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I didn't have any documentary, um, anything she could go read. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when I tell people things, uh, they want to see proof. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yes, I do understand. But, yeah. So I'm ho- I hope she's listening to this radio station and she can look for that. Uh, the writing. I will send I'll send you a link about. to it. Um yeah, I, I've been giving it out, you know, since um I learned about it from um from Brother Kubaka. It was easy to yeah. find. I went online, just put in, you know, Delilah Beasley because she's also her 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 phenomenal book, Negro Trailblazers, is also having a centennial uh publication year this year. Um she wrote what's her first name? Uh, Slavery Delilah. No, what's she her? wrote um Beasley is her last name. B E A L E Y. No, I know the last name is Beasley. What's the first name? Delilah. Delilah. Oh, Delilah Beasley. Okay, I got it. Right. Yeah, and um, yeah, she was. Um, she worked for the Oakland Tribune. First, um, oh, she was first woman, but first African person to write for the Tribune, and she was a, you know, she was a lobbyist. Um, you know, and she pushed, you know, Jack London, not not Jack London, but um, what's the name of the um. I can't remember his name. The um, uh, the governor of of the state um, in in a few areas, you know, around um, making um, life, you know, more fair for people of African descent, you know, in this state, mm-hmm. particularly in the Bay Area, because she 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 um, relocated to Oakland, and that was her that was her home base, and she didn't have any children, you know, she was like. She dedicated her life to to our our you know making sure that we had justice and freedom, and she used her pen, and 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 her access to the media to be able to like write these columns and write these stories and publish. So she was really really phenomenal, uh, Delilah Beasley. Yeah, we're gonna. <clears throat> I mean, again, what she said, uh, her hundred anniversary, her work, her personal. Uh, visits all over the state of California to dig up our, you know, Pan African heritage is mm-hmm. it's the the best source. A lot of people don't give it uh credence, but I think it's the best resource and that's my jumping off point. You know, I go, you know, see what she did, <laughs> two, you know, two two pages of documentation. Each one of those chapters is a book in itself. Uh mm-hmm. and so as we enter twenty twenty, our theme is uh the women and a few good men, and we're going to lift up the black woman, Delilah Beasley. In terms of history, there's there's nobody else that comes close, uh, male mm-hmm. or female, to doing the work uh, in person, uh, firsthand account of our history. There's nobody better. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, we think about, you know, Mary Ellen Pleasant, you know, and her work, you know, in um, – you know, in the Underground Railroad, you know, and bringing Africans here, you know, to California and, you know, and putting them up, you know, in jobs and housing and and funding, you know, like I think, um, you know, she was she was um, getting ready to ride because she rode as well. And she was going to ride, you know, on, um, you know, with, you know, and John Brown and, and something happened. Otherwise, she would have been martyred. Um, but she funded, well, you know, you know the thing at Harper's Ferry. She financed it. I know, I'm saying. 
Yeah. And John yeah, Brown wouldn't listen, and uh, he uh, moved faster. She couldn't get out there time enough, and you saw what mm-hmm. happened to John Brown because <clears throat> he was operating with just half the money and half the information. But mm-hmm. she, I mean, almost personally helped finance the first action that led to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, it, and she, it, mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I was just think, talking about, you know, um, uh, uh, Baba, um, um, I can Sonia, you know, you were talking well in the when I was reading about sort of the spiritual aspect of your work and and and, and Mary Ellen Pleasant, you know, she was a mambo. Um, you know, she you know, she practiced in, you know, indigenous African spirituality and you know, she lived she lived for quite a while in New Orleans before they had to leave because um, there were suspicions around, you know, her and her husband's, <laughs> you know, work, you know, with freedom, freeing African people. So they had to, like, uh-huh. keep on, they had to, like, leave and keep on moving. But um, so um, go ahead, Kabaka. And then I, I wanted to ask um, uh, Baba um, Akinsanya to talk a little bit more about African spirituality and, and how that shows up in his work. Well, yeah, well you know. Definitely the connection. It, it connects to Louisiana which correct connects directly to uh Cuba which connects directly to um you know the Yoruba uh and Haiti influence mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. Haiti uh it's all it's all connected and that's mm-hmm. what is uh real clear in the work uh, of Akisanya uh and what's going to be at the Crocker Art Museum um the first week in Black History Month you know when I when I first realized um, when I was working I used to I've been I've been doing this um, ceramic sculpture since 1971 and uh, <clears throat> I didn't know where it was coming from all these African uh, uh, deities I didn't really know what they were until I started going to Africa and I think I went to Africa first in 1974 and it wasn't until my trip in 1994 when I went into this slave dungeon in Elmina, Elmina Castle in Ghana. <clears throat> and what happened to me there is while we were on tour, um, some sisters was asking the docent about these big old iron balls that were in the, in the courtyard out there. And uh, the guy, the docent, didn't really want to say what they were for. So the women kept pushing him, and he finally decided he would tell them that a lot of the women that they brought into those castles were were beautiful, and the man who ran the fort would want to make sex with them, and they would always refuse. So what they would do is they would take these women and they would chain them up by the leg out in the courtyard, totally nude, and they wouldn't let them loose until they agreed to go up the ladder to this guy's bedroom, which was right off the courtyard. And when he told that story, I was standing next to a guy from France, and he started it was so funny, and he started laughing. Really? And I don't know what came over me, but I just grabbed him by the throat, and I was trying to get my knife out. <laughs> hmm. But my wife grabbed me because she, she's real perceptive when I'm getting ready to go off. So she pulled me off of him and made me leave. So as I went up the path, I was walking out of this dungeon, and I was looking at the floor and how the bricks were worn round from the barefooted 
Africans who thousands of them who crossed it that way, and they were smooth. And I was just looking, and I was thinking about all the people who had gone through this. And I got out, and I was got to the sunlight. I was outside, and I waited until the tour was over. And then the docent came over to me, and he told me, he said, "Brother, he said, I understand how you feel, because I, because I was, I really went off in the sky." He said, "You and your wife can go back in there by yourself." I said, "Oh, thanks." So, so me and her went back in there. Since she had already done the whole tour, she went one way and I went another. And I went into this dungeon where they said they had, uh, I don't know, where it was the biggest dungeon they had, where most of the people were housed. And someone had put an altar up with candles. And I knelt down before the altar and I started meditating. And all of a sudden, I heard a female voice say, we've been waiting for you. Mm -hmm. And it scared the mess out of me. And I looked up, and I saw all these African spirits. They were standing there, and this woman said, we need you to teach our children who were stolen about our history, about our culture, and about our religions. That's what she said. Mm. And I started thinking to myself, I said, but, you know, I don't know that much. This was in 94. I said, I don't know that much about this stuff. She said, don't worry. We have been guiding your hand. Can you believe that? Hmm. Wow. And it shocked me. It really shocked me. But then when I when I got back to my studio and I looked around and I saw the work that I had been doing, and when, while I'm working, I just kind of get into like a zone, you know. I'm not present. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mind is not there. I'm 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 working, and and my wife knows it because she knows that. If I'm working, she gotta she gotta talk to me and give me about five or ten minutes to come back on this side. You know, she gotta get come get me out of it. Usually, she doesn't bother me when I'm working, but uh, I started to understand that there's some type of a spiritual thing that's taking place, and the importance of this collection that I've accumulated over the years, and how important it is because this is where all of our history and our culture is. In this artwork. <clears throat> yeah. That's the yeah. Connection. Yeah. I wanna, yeah. I um. You know, when you mention about um. You know, the torture. You know, and and I think about um. Brian Stevenson's um. Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, and the uh, National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration, and the whole idea of racial terror killings. And racial terror, period. You know, um, and and the psychological impact of 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 this terrorism on the yet to be born, and and how you know when these 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 children that were not born yet, you know, experienced, um, you know, witnessed inside of their mothers, you know, this 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 terrorism, and their mothers, you know, because since they're connected still you know, um, because the babies are inside of their mom, you know, she's, so that's true. you know, sort of, yeah. And so, and so when the child is born, the child doesn't have any language for the terror that he or she experienced. And it does, it does affect, um, the child, um, and, the, but, but the child doesn't have any words for it. You know, that's what, you know, why we call it a ma'afa, right? This is like a continuation of the great calamity 
or the reoccurring, oh my God. Um, you know, you violence. Know? And even now, you know, we have, you know, we have babies being traumatized, you know, in our cities, you know, when, when, when people are being shot and we're hearing all these noises and, and people are getting on their floors in their homes and babies don't know, they just know their mama says, like, get down, right? And then, yeah. and then, and they don't have any language for this. And then they grow up and this is like normalized, but still, it's still traumatic because people are dying. And, and then, you know, you know, then it, since it's becoming more of a military state now, so in some communities they've got, you know, these, these armored trucks also rolling down the street. I mean, it's just like craziness insofar as, you know, what? You know trying, to, I didn't believe, trying to be normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe that was true, mm-hmm. but when I heard about it, I thought that that was just something that the white folks believed. That's mm-hmm. why they would, because I have a painting that I did of mm-hmm. these women, pregnant women standing around while this guy cuts this baby out of this woman's stomach. Mm-hmm. And all these pregnant women standing around watching it. And when I, you know, because I heard old folks told me that this is what they would would do because they thought it would make the baby afraid to be rebellious. Mm-hmm. And um, but and I and I just painted I painted these paintings because you know that's what I do. Even though I I know that people believe that I know that they believed it, but I thought it was just something that they were that that they were I don't know I didn't know that 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 really happens. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of hard yeah. to believe, but. Mhm. Well. Yeah. So then so then you wonder like okay so art you know. Um, is also, you know, sort of where the remedy lies too, you know, in our cultural expressions, you know, that's how we can, you know, face, you know, this, you know, like, you know, the Sankofa concept, right? You know, we go back to fetch it, but then sometimes, you know, like it's there's it's fear, you know, it's fearful to actually witness this. So then you think about, you know, sort of Dred Scott and, you know, having this, you know, hosting and, and, and facilitating this, Slave Rebellion reenactment. So we're reenacting, you know, this freedom march, right? This is a freedom march. So, so that's a way of of cleansing ourselves and of, you know, sort of changing the story. You know, sort of recasting um, what was once fearful, you know, in in a different light. Because it's a real, it's a, you know, it, you know, the, the becoming well and healing is something that. You can't like wish that happens. Like it's actually a conscious act that you have to like know that something is broken to be able to fix it. Um, yeah, that's that's where we are. And uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Joy DeGuri, uh with post-traumatic slave syndrome. Uh, yeah, Joy DeGruy mm-hmm. dedicated her life, you know, to to not only talking about it but ways and steps to address it. Because mm-hmm. if we don't think we're not well, we think we're perfectly whole and healthy, and you can see in our behavior that we're not. And I'm talking about mm-hmm. us as a people. Uh, mm-hmm. We've learned to adapt and learned how to, you know, beat the system. Uh, some folks with PhDs, uh, and you look at, you know, their lives, they're just, they just, they're crazy. But they have a, mm-hmm. a, a high degree from some school institution, but you go to their house, and they run around thinking that they white people and they black as ace of spades. 
Yeah, so you they, think they that can't deal with their problems. these paintings that of all that uh, torture and stuff, you think they should be shown? Um, you know that that's a good question because at some point, um, you know, you you think what to what purpose, right? Does this serve? Um, you know, reliving the tragedy. I, I think I really, that's what I really appreciated about the Freedom March, you know, like marching to New Orleans, you know, um, slavery or death, you know, you know, I, yeah. that's what I liked about that as opposed to reenacting our, um, you know, something where, um, yeah, like why would I want to reenact being enslaved, right? I mean, to what purpose is that? Um, like what purpose does that serve? Um, it just... I think it's 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 an unnecessary traumatic experience that I could I could resist because I have a lot of friends that don't they don't go to the movies anymore where black folks are getting lynched. It's like I don't do that anymore. I've seen my last movie <laughs> like that. And well, you know, because yeah. Mm-hmm. I, well, I I I I think that <clears throat> the assignment that I was given mm-hmm. was to was to do this work. And maybe, because, see, I know that these kids nowadays that are growing up, they don't know nothing about slavery. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't, I had a—I had an experience where I had a, a, a painting of an auction block, slave auction, and the guy was mm-hmm. standing on the block and he was naked. And I had some high school students from Poly High School passing by my place and they came in and they were looking at the, at the painting and the one guy asked me, how come you don't have no clothes on? <clears throat> I told him, I said, well, when they had you on the auction block, they would have you naked. And the the people that were bidding on you would be poking you and touching you and have you turn around and jump and all this kind of stuff. And he said, uh-uh, he couldn't believe it. Mm. So I said to myself, and this, and, and, and that's not the, that's not the first time. Uh, the mm-hmm. first time was when Roots first came out, and I was right. in Fresno at the time. And uh, I w- went to the liquor store, and I was coming out of the liquor store, and I saw uh, about 15 youngsters over there beating the hell out of a cab driver. And I ran across the street, and I pulled them off the man, and I said, what are y'all doing? And he said, didn't you see Roots? I said, yeah, I saw Roots. He said, well, he's white. I said, oh, Lord. And I said, man, that man ain't had nothing to do with this. Leave that man alone. So I had to pull him off this guy. Hmm. And he got out, and he was all bloody, and he, they had beat him into a irrigation canal across the street from the liquor store. And I, hmm. I, I, I said, damn. I said, you know what? I said, these kids don't even know this history, and when they get it, they're shocked. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. shocked so much that they react physically and violently to people because this is something that they haven't been given doses of. Mm -hmm. At that time, I made up my mind, even if I'm not doing these paintings to sell, I'm doing Mm -hmm. it so so our kids will know the history. Mm -hmm. And when that woman told me, we need you to teach our children who were stolen about our history, about our culture, and about our religions, Mm -hmm. I think that this is the assignment that I'm supposed to do. I -hmm. just need to make sure that there's a venue where it can be presented and mm-hmm. where people can see it. You know, when you have right. this in your home and you grow up with it on your wall and your grandmother and your grandfather can tell the kids 
about this stuff, then they're not shocked when mm-hmm. they realize it, you know? They're not shocked, mm-hmm. and then they, they, they know, they're ready, they're prepared. Right. Yeah, I think I think it needs context. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's not. Yeah, it's because we have a lot of a lot of imagery. You know, that's out of context, and you know, and we have, and so when there's no context, then then what could be a positive outcome from you know knowing this history, and also sort of its effect on the person, on the spectator. Um, particularly since this is a personal thing, you know, these are your people, these people that you're looking at look like you, you know, um, you know, that really sort of, it sort of really takes away from its potential in in undoing some of the knots that we're tied up into, right? Um, You know, that we're born, like we're born kind of like tangled. And then, and then we, and then we're like delivered into this, this, this paradigm that is not, uh, one that's about African freedom and and and, and you know and and justice and and the kind of life where we could actually have be free and happy, you know and 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 be prosperous. This is this is not the kind of place that we're born into, you know, in this Western culture, um, and all and the whole world is becoming sort of Western, you know, culture influenced. Well, this, that, that that's the beauty of it is the 400-year celebration, the commission that the United States Congress has <clears throat> authorized mm-hmm. and, you know, last Juneteenth uh, in the halls of the United States Congress was the beginning conversation of what did happen over the last 400 years of enslavement and affliction. And so it, the context of that is set. We do not have to imagine what happened to us personally. We can look at our family and know. But the world mm-hmm. does not know of mm-hmm. the things that happened to us. That we have yet to have adult conversations about slavery and affliction. I mean, people will argue all day long about that whether there was slavery in California or not. We were one vote shy of being part of the Confederacy. I mean, it's, it's nothing mm-hmm. to debate. But absent a <clears throat> curriculum design that includes us, absent an mm-hmm. African museum in the capital of the fifth largest economy on the planet, where are you going to learn these things? So this is our job. This is our task going into 20, closing out 2019, the 400-year uh, biblical scripture, Genesis 15, chapter 12 to 14, verse, talks about it. You know, God's going to do the judging. You know, it's going to be members of the Congress that, you know, hold impeachment hearings on the president. He's going to be judged. But the idea is how do we have a better conversation globally? And that's what Dr. Ericana Chiamori Kuo was doing as the ambassador union of the Africa Union, all the countries in Africa are coming together. So we can very easily go to Senegal, the largest African museum on planet Earth, and tell mm-hmm. our story. You know, what is you know, the African contribution in the sixth region of the African Union, which is all of what happened in North America, South America, the Caribbean. We get to tell our story, and we're certainly capable of telling our story. Mm-hmm. Well, thank God for old folks and ancestors because had I not listened to them, I wouldn't have these stories myself, even though I just paint about them and I make them visual, and sometimes it's difficult for me to do, but I know these things happened, you know, 
And like you said, mm-hmm. there has to be some type of context. It has to be explained, you know, so that so that people will know why you have these horrible paintings, you know, because I think people are under the impression that art has to be something that's beautiful, you know. And I, I disagree with that. I think that if you're an artist and you come from a segment of society which grew up with oppression, your responsibility is to, is to do an art. And I'm not thinking that it's just painting and drawing and sculpture. I'm talking about singing and dancing. Your art has to reflect your culture. Your art has to reflect the truth, whatever your art is. If you're, if you're coming from an oppressed segment of society and you're a singer, you need to sing about oppression, sing about eliminating oppression, sing about liberation, sing about the movement. Those are the things that we have to do. If you're painting, you need to paint about it. If you're dancing, dance, dance your dance about liberation dances. This is what we have to do if we're going to be creating things. You can't just make everything uh, roses and, you know, pretty flowers and that that can't be what our art is. Our art has to reflect our struggle, respect, reflect our reality. You know, we got to reflect the lynchings, the castrations, the burnings alive. We got to reflect all of that in our art. I'm sorry, but I just believe that. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not wrong. It's it's it's, it's all in context. It's all in balance. Because I've seen your collection. You have. Um, studied in great detail the beauty of black women, and it's reflected in your art. I mean, there's some of the most beautiful pieces, you know, like because the, the, the subject matter is some of the most beautiful women on the earth, so it's reflected in your art. So it's, it's the entire human experience that we have uniquely expressed in the blessing of being an African person, you know, reflected the melanin within us. So, yes, we have to tell the whole story. But you know, it's like when you have a child, you you know, you don't just set the apple in front of them. You cut it up, mash it up, and you get a little small spoon. Sometimes with some plastic on it, but you know, you have to put it in the context where they could they could receive it well, uh, and, yeah. and that's our job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking. I don't know if you know the argument that I think it was Richard Wright posed to. I don't know if it's W. B. Du Bois or James Baldwin. But they were talking about, he was talking about how, you know, the African people, that we didn't have the luxury of, you know, painting beautiful sunsets, um, you know, that, you know, the, the artist's task was to tell the story of the people, you know, in the moment of the creation. And um, so, it's, it, you know, it sort of sounds like, you know, you're sort of, um, you know, coming up in, in the tradition of, of Richard Wright, you know, your thinking is in that tradition. Um, however, um, I think that, you know, if if the uh, if the intention is truth-telling, you know, you will see the truth in the work, uh, you know, whether it's, um, it's a, realist, a realist representation or it's abstract, you know, the moment, the emotion, which is what art culture carries, the emotion, you know, will be something that's tangible and that people who are supposed to be affected or are affected by it, you know, will sort of get the same kind of energy from that and and hopefully, you know, be moved to do something um, righteous with it. 
Mhm. Yeah. So any um any concluding thoughts um from from you know, um both of you, either of you? Um this has been a great conversation. Um and hopefully, you know, the first of, of others. Well mine well, mine would be brief. The the idea that um this is a blessed introduction last night to uh Wanda and, and Akasanya. And, you know, I would suggest that we have lunch maybe next week sometime before uh, we go back down to Gallery Combone South. But the, the, the idea is that the art, the, everything, the culture, is it has to be expressed at a highest level. And that's going to be seen at the Crocker Art Museum uh, Black History Month, uh, you know, one of the premier West Coast museums. And I think it's going to spark a global conversation uh, on how we heal because it's going to be Yoruba culture through the hands that have been touched by the ancestors. Mm-hmm. Well, my only thing is, Wanda, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And my final words will be from Dr. Kwame Nkrumah when he said, the degree of a country's revolutionary awareness can be measured by the political maturity of its women. That's for you, Wanda. Mm-hmm. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Well, enjoy your your lunch, um, my brothers, cuz I hear that's what's happening next on your schedule. <laughs> you take good care. Peace and blessings. Okay. All right. Odabo. Odabo. Okay, so we are going to um, rebroadcast uh, an interview with Adia Tamar Whitaker. She had she produced uh, the Bluesicle at ODC. It was really awesome. But I think uh, it's um, along the lines of of our conversation, and um, and uh, so I think you will enjoy it. Well, we were supposed to be starting with uh, <laughs> um, with a uh, giant trinity, but oh well, we'll just get started and try it again a little later. We are so excited to have Adia Tamar Whitaker in the studio to talk about um, the uh, Ashe Dance Theater Collective's West Coast premiere of Have No, that's K in parentheses, N-O apostrophe, and then W, Have No Fear, a Bluesico, and that's going to be October 17th through 19th. And Adia um, uh, Tamar Whitaker is artistic director of this 19-year-old Brooklyn-based dance theater ensemble, Ashe Dance Theater Collective, and it's performed contemporary dance, vernacular movement, Afro-Haitian and Haitian dance in the United States and abroad for 17 years. Like, oh, my goodness, where did the time fly, right, Adia? Right. <laughs> yep. Wow, like amazing. You're getting ready to have your 20th anniversary next year. Like, wow. Awesome, I know. Awesome. It's been a long time. 
been a long yeah. time of doing this work. Yeah, and you've been traveling all throughout the world, you know, in the uh, African diaspora and elsewhere, Haiti or Haiti, Cuba, France, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Ghana, Jamaica, and Trinidad. And when you're there, um, uh, you both study and teach dance. And you received your MFA in dance from Hollins University, which is in Virginia. Yeah, I just completed that. I just completed Congratulations. that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a lot of hard work, but I made it through. Yeah. I'm not really an <laughs> academic type of uh, person, but, you know, mm-hmm. I just had to get my freedom papers, some more freedom papers. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah. And Virginia, you know, um, sort of honoring the 400th anniversary of of the Commonwealth's, uh, you know, entrance into, um, you know, this particular hemisphere as uh, a, a place that had African people, you know, as possessions. Um, so that was in August. And so where's Holland's in relationship to um, oh, uh, Hampton? I, you know, I don't know where it is in relationship to Hampton, but Ho- Hollins was an old plantation. So it's what? just a deep, yeah, it was an old plantation. And so the people, the descendants of the Africans that lived on that plantation and, and worked as enslaved Africans still live on the land and are the groundskeepers, and they work in the cafeteria. And you can visit this, like, the graveyard of a family. So I think it's the Locke family. They have their... Mm-hmm graves in one place and then they have the graves of their enslaved Africans there as well. So Hollins was deep. I could I didn't get over to the graveyards because it was just such such a journey for me. But um mm-hmm. just being on the land where Africans were enslaved and everybody knows it and then I guess it turned into a spa at some point. And then after mm-hmm. that, since Hollins is a un- women's university, there were mm-hmm. The young women that attended there were allowed to have a young black woman as their kind of helper to help mm-hmm. them, I don't know, carry their books or just, I don't know, just basically work for them. So that's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting kind of strangeness that was also going on there. And it also is on indigenous land. We have to also mm-hmm. remember that before all mm-hmm. of our ancestors got there, it was indigenous land. So there's a lot of strong like psychic and spiritual energy just on the campus to Holland because it's really old and in the middle of the campus there's a big you know like a big circle with a cross in the middle so for me it's a Dikenga it's a big Congolese you know cosmogram in the middle of the quad with four houses on each side so there's lots of energy there and also when I was I uh, one of the parts of big parts of have no fear. Um, I refer to Margaret Wise Brown's book, Good Night Moon, the children's book. And so yeah. there was this big ballroom on campus that had this big green carpet. And every time I'd go in the room, I'd be like, in the great green room, there was a telephone. And I'd get all excited. But there wasn't a whole lot of parents there. So it didn't really mean as much to my cohort as it did to me. But every time I would go in that room, I would just, like, even under my breath, I would recite this, in the great green room there was a telephone. And one day I went to the student union, and I saw her book in the student union. I'm like, oh, my God, this book has been a part of my life since I've had children. I've had to read it for eight years. I've memorized it. And I was like, do you have children's books on campus? 
And they said, no, we just have her book because she's an alumni. And so mm. I went back wow. and I looked at some more information to find out if she has been in the room that I would mm-hmm. go into and have this urge to say lines from her book. And it turned out that at the time she went to school there, it was a cafeteria. So she was absolutely in that space. So mm-hmm. that's one of the, the like kind of connected tissues that, that I was like, okay, let me figure out why this dead white woman is talking to me because mm-hmm. she's an ancestor as well. And I need to figure out what she, what her, what her connection to my work is because Every time I go in that space, I'd, I'd say those lines, and then when it was time to pick our the place we would perform for our thesis, I was like, I don't want to do it in the theater. I need to do it in that ballroom because it was like a gazebo ceiling, a big, shiny chandelier, and I don't even know if my ancestors would have been allowed in that space to be in service of all the very, very dead white people on the walls because the whole space was surrounded by pictures of the Locke family, all these white elders and scholars. So I'm mm-hmm. sure that my family would not have been allowed in that room at all if it were not in service. Um, so I was like, well, because I know that we probably weren't allowed in this room, I'm about to do this right here underneath your shiny <laughs> crystal chandelier on your green carpet in front of all. And it gave such a a, a backdrop to the choreography and the singing and what we were doing because you know we got drums up there we were barefoot we had rocks but it wasn't it was definitely not what we would have been able to do between the 15th and the 19th, 18th century you know mm-hmm. <laughs> wow this is so amazing yeah wow place is everything isn't it right right it totally yeah, is and yes. I think that you know, like I was getting a lot of people were like, you know, with with us performing at ODC, it's a mm-hmm. completely, you know, this piece or these, you know, everything that we're going to present was really, I got to a place in performing in the concert stage where I was like, you know, I, it wasn't enough for me anymore. And I'm like, you know, the people that inspire most of the work that a lot of artists do don't get to see it, right? Maybe they can't afford mm-hmm. to come to the show. Maybe they have so many life things that are keeping them from the theater. So really this piece was designed as a model of, like, performance art, protest, and action because I was like, you know, it's fine to do it in the theater, but the theater is a very sanctioned space, and I'm interested in the spaces where we don't have permission. Like, Rosa Parks didn't ask for permission. She just said no. You know, mm-hmm. you don't... You don't ask permission for the revolution to happen or for resistance to happen. And so I was like, you know, I feel like we're in a time where there's so much performing of the progressive and of the revolution and of resistance. But people are not really willing to be uncomfortable or to put their lives on the line. And the United States is one of the only places where we can at this time, maybe not in a couple weeks or in a month, that I have an opportunity to present a work like this and not be murdered. And that, you know, I'm very I'm very present with the privilege that I have to be able to present this work, whether it's on the street or whether it's in a theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, wow. Yeah, um, I'm going to run, keep on running through your, your bio, and then I want us to talk more about, about what you call um, this work, an undoing spell to untie all the knots that choke the future. 
from natural disasters and systemic oppression to forced migration. It's a work of both healing and resistance. And um, notice that um, you uh, you came through, you know, that wonderful institution. Uh, I don't know what it's looking like now in, in San Francisco, San Francisco State University, but you were probably there when all those wonderful um, elder women, African women teachers were there, and I want to pour an ashe to um, to Dr. Uh, Nasisi Caillou, who, who made right. her transition. Mm-hmm. Ashe. Nasisi. Yeah. Yep, those those were the ones that came and got me. Doctor Doctor Kai was my teacher. Doctor Bird is my teacher. Alicia mm-hmm. Pierce is my teacher. Malanga Costa mm-hmm. is my teacher. Carlos Acuna nice. is my teacher. Pakista mm-hmm. is my teacher. Um, so many teachers. Miss Blanche Brown <laughs> is my teacher. Michelle mm-hmm. Martin is my teacher. Portia Jefferson is my teacher. All of them. They all they all brought me into being who I think I am right now. And um I didn't really know you know, I didn't know I was a regular Frisco, San Francisco youth. I didn't know anything about no conscious nothing and no drums. I just went to San Francisco State because I was in Upward Bound and I got that's the college I got into. So mm-hmm. when I met all these people, they really came and got me. It wasn't I was like, No, I'm gonna you know, be a journalism major or something. And they were like, no, 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 no. You need to come on over here. And I was like, no, I'm not going to be able to survive as a dancer. I don't want to be, uh. And I had all these notions about, like, what an artist, you know, like what it is to be an artist and how I would just be struggling and hungry. And even though that happens sometimes, I just, you know, I always have to thank them for pushing me and (laughs) chasing me down and being like, no, 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 you come over here. (laughs) <laughs> oh wow, that is so awesome. So, so tell us about tell us about the work because um, there there are a lot of a lot of parts to it. And also, I want to mention that um, that you um, you were part of uh, the the uh, what is it the professional you got a professional division U.S. Independent Studies program something or another at Ailey School. Oh yeah, uh, I just I just went, that's how I came to New York is I I got done at mm-hmm. San Francisco State. In 2000, and then when I was coming, I was didn't know what I was going to do, so I bought a ticket to Cuba because I was like, let me just go and see if I'm just going to travel the world and study dance. Cause I, you know, I ended up doing it anyway, but I, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And, like, at the last minute, I think my mom got tickets to see um, Ailey at the Zeller Block, and Ron mm-hmm. Brown did Grace in that show. Ah. The Ailey Company was performing, and Ron Brown, I did grace, and I had never seen anything like it. And so because I saw grace, I decided Mm -hmm. I was going to audition for the Ailey School the next day because I wasn't going to. I had auditioned the year before, and I didn't get in. And so I was like, "Mm, you know, maybe I'll go see the show. So I went to see the show, and at the last minute, I was like, I'm going to audition I went to Berkeley, I auditioned, and then I got into the professional division independent study program. And then, so that was June, and then I was in New York in September. Oh, wow. And then Ashe started performing <laughs> in December. Oh, my. And I was, wow. You know, yeah, it was quick. It was a quick little, this is your destiny, you know, moment. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you, you get those kind of calls. Like, they're, you know, you don't have to wander around. It's like... This is what we want you to do. The ancestors are yeah. telling us. Right. Yeah, that's nice. 
you know, sometimes yeah, you have to wander nice. around for a bit. It's good when you get a more direct, right? <laughs> and you listen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's always been that way, though. So I guess, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. that is a blessing. It is a blessing, yes, absolutely. <laughs> mhm. Yeah. So, so tell us more about um, this wonderful "Have No Fear" a Bluesico, and and your, you know, your dance theater collective, and you know all the different pieces that are you're pulling together that people won't know. Like, wow, this was a real big thing. Um, you know, both sides yeah, of I, the country and. You know, all these yeah, different creative minds that are coming together and, you know, the multiple genres, you know, there's dance, there's live music. Um, yeah. yeah, talk to us about it. So um, it began with, um, I start, I choreographed the first section of Have No Fear. So Have No Fear, a bluesical, is composed of three parts. The first part is called A Break for the Five. I choreographed, I started to choreograph A Break for the Five, I'd say in like 2007, for a show called Native Tongue that happened at LBC. The show was presented by Hasita Vlock. And so it was really her show, but she she wanted me to do work in it, or she asked me to do work in it, and I said yes. And originally it was kind of an idea. I knew that just from my personal experiences that, um, my friends, a lot of the black folks in Frisco were leaving. They were going back down south um, when I was in San Francisco. And there was a point where I wanted to come back to San Francisco. My friends were like, don't come back here. Something like new and kind of dangerous and strange is happening. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to come home. And they were like, no, no, don't come back because you're going to get caught up in it. And I was like, I don't understand. But, you know, I think they were describing like the prison industrial complex had gone from something that we were – marching in the street about and like something that was over there that we were like standing up for and it became like very personal and started to affect my family their families people we know um and so it became kind of like if you stay in san francisco you kind of have a couple fates you'll either uh get addicted to drugs or the cops will kill you or um you you know, turned out by just street life. Um, and so it was really hard. They were just like, it's really hard for black folks. A lot of people are going down south. So a lot of people are moving out. And that's when gentrification really started to pop. And so my friends were like, just don't come home. There's just no, there's not opportunities here for us like that anymore. And so when I was, when I started to make work, you know, you can't make the same work that is relevant out here in the East Coast to what's happening in the Bay because the Bay is like a whole nother thing. So although mm-hmm. I can do the work that ha- is happening out here, there's just way more diversity in the African diaspora. So the the things that we are talking about or talk about in the Bay, it just, there's different issues you need to address when you're there because they're just different places with different populations and people from different places, you know. And so mm-hmm. I decided I was going to do a break for the five, and I wanted to do – um, a rah-rah for the like disappearing population of African Americans and just people of color in San Francisco, and so that's mm-hmm. how it started. So I looked at the the model of a Haitian rah-rah and how it was used or it is used as a form of political protest, but then also looking using some of the like voodoo of it, like the sequins to reflect the negative energy away, um, and also kind of creating this inner diasporic syncretization between not only um, uh, visual like aesthetics from 
Haitian folklore, but also from uh, folklore that comes from Trinidad and Tobago, and just kind of making this place where the diaspora meets and decides that um, we're all cousins and we're all Africans and we share a lot of, even though our specific situations are very different, we still are kind of um, speaking up against the same forces that seek to oppress us and silence us um, and take our freedoms away. And so that's how Break for the Five happened. And then it grew a little bit bigger when Mark Bamucci Joseph brought us to the Bay Area to perform in the Living Word Festival, I believe, in like 2010, mm-hmm. 9, 10. We did it twice. Okay. We did it like 2000, okay. maybe 2008 and then 2010. And so it grew into mm-hmm. something bigger. Um, and it just kept growing and growing. And I feel like my pieces, all the pieces that I create are like children. And, you know, people, you know, in the society we live in, people want you to produce all these things really quickly and make pieces, make works, and what are you doing next? And I feel like that's one thing that I've really resisted is I've been like, you know what, I'm going to take time to grow this work to its full realization and potential and really see what it is. And if it takes me 20 years to do that, then I'm going to do that. And so this is the piece where I feel like I really dug my heels in and was like, no, I'm not just going to keep making things to make things. I'm going to make mm-hmm. things that have that have relevance and are poignant. And so um, that's how a break for the five happened. That's the first section. The other part of a break for the five is that I'm the first female in my family on my mother's side to not participate in the quilting tradition um, in our mm-hmm. family, and my family's from South Carolina, and so that's a big deal. Um, that was a big deal in our family, and so for me, because I didn't grow up in South Carolina, because I just visited and I grew up in the Bay, I always felt like a really strong connection to my family, but, that you know, I'm always like the diversified cousin or the kind of outsider, but the 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 how do you say the tradition the tradition of the Baptist Church, although I'm not Christian at all. It is very strong in me because my grandfather, Reverend C.J. Whitaker, was a Baptist minister, um, and he was responsible for forming the first, like, Democratic Party in Greenville, South Carolina. So he was also an activist. So that runs strong in that side of my family. And so I wanted to participate in that quilting tradition with my mama's people because I was like, you know, I feel like they speak to me in dreams and they give me all this kind of um, inspiration in the work that I create. And so I wanted to be able to speak to them further. And so in creating a break for the five, this is my, like, this, these are my patches for my familial quilt or my ancestral quilt. This is like my telephone to my ancestors on that side of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after I came, after I, I've been working on the break for the five, we performed it a bunch of times. It kept growing and changing. Um, and then in 2011, after I was in the Bay area, um, for quite some time presenting work at Counterpost, um, I hmm. came pregnant with my daughter. <laughs> and so my daughter was born on 9-11-11. She was born during Occupy Wall Street. And I remember people calling me like, it's going down. You need to come out here. And I was like, I just had a baby at my house. Like, I've been in labor for four days. I can't come outside. And so my um, – that kind of put me in a moment of like, okay, well, I can no longer be a lieutenant in the same way in terms of actions. Like, I can't go outside right now. I might not be able to go outside all the time, so how can I participate in 
the things that are happening and the things that I still very much believe in and support without being on the front lines. And so that's when I think Have No Fear started to bubble. At that time, like a little bit after my my daughter was born, after she was born, uh, I still was performing a Break for the Five, and I was trying to figure out, like, okay, how do I do this? Because I can't, I mean, I can go outside with my baby, but we get pepper sprayed. That's just, and then my family's going to, like, jump on me because I had a baby outside in mm-hmm. in some kind of, you know, whatever. So I was, I was really kind of in a place of stuckness, and I think what pushed it through is then I became pregnant with my son in 2014, and I was doing a residency in Trinidad, and um, while I was in Trinidad, or while we were in Tobago, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement started. So although we all knew, know that these things were happening already, have always been happening, it just became way more highly publicized. And I was like, yo, like, I got to go back to the United States, and I'm pregnant with this little boy. Like, it's all bad. So, so yeah, so that's what I was like, how am I going to teach my children to protect themselves? Like, this is crazy. Like, I don't know. Like, this is, like, now it's a state of emergency. And I had had pieces that people had kind of warned me about that I had done, like little singing and dancing pieces that then later became a part of Have No Fear that, that my friends that were folklorists was like, you know, you got to be careful, like, singing and dancing and all that because, you know, you talking about people and they might come get you. And I'm like, well, you know, Nina Simone did it. James Baldwin did it, Bob Marley did it, James Brown did it. Like, if they did it, like, shouldn't we be doing it too? Like, didn't they show us a way to do it? And so mm-hmm. I think I was building the work inside of other works for a very long time, but I think I was I was maybe a little scared to put it all together. Into, I knew mm-hmm. it was something, but I just didn't want to put it all in one piece because I knew if I did it, like, little by little, I could see how people would react to it. And they had some strong reactions, even though they were just sections of pieces. And so when I got back to Brooklyn, um, there was, you know, the gentrification that's happening and the dislocation, all the things that are happening in the Bay Area are beginning to still beginning to happen in Brooklyn. It hasn't happened in the Bay out here as severely as it's happened in the Bay. But um, there was some filmmakers that wanted to collaborate with some neighborhood artists and they were doing a fellowship for this organization called Union Docs. And so we were connected through one of the dancers in my company. And um, they were, they are, they were three white women that lived like in the neighborhood. So they were gentrifiers. And technically I'm a gentrifier too, because I'm not from here. I'm not from Brooklyn, but I moved here. So, but my situation is a little bit different. And so, um, we started to work together. And for us, I mean, I took it to Ashe, you know, because Ashe a long time ago transformed from, like, just being a body of dancers and performers on stage to, like, a, a nation of mamas and babas and children and people that are all really taking care of each other, kind of like how folks did during the Great Migration when you would move from your various parts of the South and you would come up to the city. And even though you wouldn't have your blood family close, you would make your – so that's in the, in the spirit of the Great Migration. We're, we kind of did the same thing. And so I took it to mm-hmm. them, and I was like, you know, these are these three white women that want to do this film on us, but, you know, white folks stay making money off black suffering. So I was like, I don't know if we should do it. What do you guys think? And so they decided, they said, okay, yes, you will do it, but if anybody starts getting, like, major bread off it or anything, then we got to pump the brakes and we got to redo contracts and all this stuff. So Ashe agreed to do it, 
and we began the process. And for me, it was really like, okay, the new neighbors are here. They're not going anywhere. So instead of like just beasting out on the new neighbors, let's see what, let me try to be a human being. Let's share this lineage of being humans on the planet. And let's try to see what working together looks like. So we didn't have a whole lot of bumps and scrapes because, like I said, they're filmmakers. I'm a choreographer. We we share the lineage of art. So that really united us. You know, there was there was definitely cultural scrapes. And in the film, you know, there's things like I look like I'm a single mother when I have an amazing partner and I love him and he loves me, but it looks like I'm a single mother. And, you know, there's little things where I'm like, okay, you guys made some editing choices that were interesting. But I love them. They're wonderful people. And I guess they took this film all over the world. It won awards. And I, in the meantime, I just started going and getting my MFA and just living life and being a mama and being a choreographer, doing all the things I do. And then, like, a year later, it just had – the film had had a whole life. Like, when I was in Europe, I guess, I was in Germany, and then the film was in Poland, and the Polish people wanted me to come to Germany. It was a, I was like, really? I was just reading books. Like, I didn't know <laughs> that all these things were happening. And so that's how the second section of Have No Fear started, right? Because it, it, the, in the film, it's called Have No Fear. So after right. they made the film Have No Fear, then I was like – Okay, I I think that's what this piece, this next section of this piece is called. And so when I then I started to go into my thesis, and that's when it really took shape. Where I decided, okay, I'm gonna we're gonna hit all these different ideas that really keep us silenced. And I really wanted to look at the idea if I I am a an African American woman that has always grown up with fear. I've raised I've been raised in fear because. That's constantly how your parents raise you. You just know not to act a fool because you're afraid either something's going to happen. You're always afraid something's going to happen or there's a consequence, you know, like a, such a thing. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, what if, what would it be if I really addressed white Jesus and how the iconography of white Jesus has negatively affected people of color across the planet? What would it be if I really wrote Aunt Jemima's quitting speech? And I, you know, as a salute to, like, Aunt Jemima as the survival masquerade and, like, talked about how my grandma scrubbed your toilets and ironed your curtains so that I don't have to, so that everyone is clear about who we are. And, like, what if I taught my children rhymes, nursery rhymes, that would stick in their heads so if they ever got in a situation where they were faced with, police officers that didn't have their best intentions in mind. They would have this soundtrack playing in their head so they would know their next steps and they wouldn't flinch or put their hands in their pockets so that they got hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was there were several there were several motives for have no fear the bluesical and one the most important one was to keep my children alive and to keep all of our children, especially Nashe, because between now between us now there's about thirteen children and most of mm. them are boys. And so I was thinking about our boys and how we were going to teach them, you know, whatever we could, because, you know, whatever can happen. It doesn't mean, like, they have this song in their head and they won't get hurt. But it it may give them a very clear soundtrack as to their options. Um, Mm -hmm. I was also, like, looking at the idea of ritual dance theater 
and <clears throat> the power of prayer because in African tradition, my elders always teach us that you have to be really specific in your prayers and that the power of words is very strong. And so the the songs that go with the pieces um, are very intentional and they're clear. You know, it's not, I've done so much work where so much of the, the music I've created is like coded and it's proverb and it's double entendre. And you see this in a break for the five, but in Have No Fear, it's really, it's, it just says what it is and it does what it does. It wasn't about like creating the most intricate choreography and abstracting things so far that people couldn't identify what they were because I want to get Auntie such and such out of the laundromat to come and see what I'm talking about, to see if she'll come to the courthouse with me and hold a sign. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to get, you know, the, the, this, that foundation donor to see like, Oh, that I, that I've studied and that I've, I have this certain level of technique. It's really about people being together in a room, in a space, and trying to figure out and shifting. It's not even offering an answer. It's really like, okay, if we get together in a space and we shift, then something else might shift. Because if you look at labor, if you look at when a person is in labor, like you really hope and pray that at the end of the labor that you have a child, that you have a person. But some people don't have that outcome. But whatever you, whatever the outcome is of labor, you still shifted, you still changed it, changed, and you still grew. And so that's that's what I think that I'm trying to do, especially when it comes to this time in history that we're in. Nobody really knows what to do because all of these constructs of whiteness and blackness and other and all of these different things, we were born into them. And so we can we can have all of our decolonizing our imagination all of these different things but in the end we're all trying to figure out like what actually to do to shift the the like foundations of white supremacy patriarchy and capitalism that keep us all stuck because we we live here so we all support it we're all a part of it but nobody really knows what we can do. And so my idea is real simple. It's like if we come together in a space and we actually shift our bodies in a space, then maybe that will cause some shift. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Um, well, we're kind of out of time, but I wanted to um, give you an opportunity um, in closing to um, maybe talk about um, maybe give the names of of the members of Ashe, and I know you're going to have um, a special um, Oakland-based musician who also yeah. serves as the music director, um, and I don't want to mess up um, his name, so that's why I'm not <laughs> saying it, unless you do so, it. Yes, I want to know if you could give give the, give the names of, of, you know, the other members of, of Ashe. So this process has been quite challenging because the, cl- the ca- cast is split in colors. On the West Coast, from um, even though Guy DeChalice is from New York and was mm-hmm. the artistic director of Ashe Dance Theater Collective for many, many years, he moved to the Bay Area. And so he is the, the fiddler in the work, and he is the musical director of the work. We also have the extraordinary voices of Tossi Long and Zakia Shapeshifter Harris, they are just, like, gorgeous singers and amazing artists in their own right. Like, aside from me, they have their own things going on, and you should check them out. 
Um, mm-hmm. The other drummers we have working with us are Pablo Soto Campo Amor, and he is an extraordinary visual artist as well. And then we have Eliyahu Salam. Um, and so those are the Bay Area kind of Ashe folks. I would also put uh, Andrew, he's a lighting designer, and he has been with us since Counter Pulse. So I would definitely throw him uh, like a shout out to him as a dope lighting designer. Um, from the East Coast, uh, we have uh, Alexandra Jean-Joseph, we have Brian Polite, we have Kendra Ross, Aaron Holmes, um, ay, 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 oh no, Kendra Holmes, Tanisha Newland, um, I think that's everybody, yeah, I think that's everybody. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Those are all, right. Yeah, those are all the Ashe East and West folks. Okay, and um, the filmmakers again? Oh, um, I'm sorry, Imani and Zinga. That's the other one, Imani and Zinga. Oh. And Stephanie okay. Bostos. What am I doing? Bay Area, Stephanie Bostos. She's also in it. I'm so sorry, Stephanie Bostos. is amazing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it says the, the project's filmmakers include um, Beata. Beata Kalinska. Uh, mm-hmm. Tracy Williams, who is also she's also working with us, like art direction, like helping us um, do some of our social media stuff, um, mm-hmm. and Sarah Jacobson, um, and everything really has been brought together as well by an organization called Purpose Productions, um, ran by Austin Edwards, and um, our production manager is Marisol Ibarra. So I think that's everybody. <laughs> Right. Um, so it's a whole village and, of people. Nice, nice. And again, we're speaking to Adia Tamara Whitaker um, about Ashe Dance Theater Collective uh, having uh, its West Coast premiere of Have No Fear, a Blusical. Again, October 17th through 19th, um, Thursday through Saturday. That's next week, 8 p.m. And uh, that's at ODC. And uh, you can go to odc.dance. Um, forward slash bluesico and ODC is located in San Francisco and I'm looking for an address. Um oh here it is. Three one five three seventeenth Street. And uh tickets are fifteen to thirty dollars. And um um I think is that everything? Um yeah, do you have a website? I do. It's ashedance.com, A-S-E-D-A-N-C-E.com. Okay, super, super. All righty. Oh, I know what I was looking for. There's going to be a talk on next Friday, um, October 18th at 630 at ODC. Uh, ODC is going to host you in a conversation, a public talk, presented in partnership with the Institute for Curatorial Practice and Performance based at Wesleyan University. So I think that part is free to the public. So folks will probably come out and hear you, you know, sort of ex- expound on, on the concept, you know, you know, with that, that MFA, you got the language too, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Maybe you have MFA. copies of your dissertation for us to be able to take home. Um. <laughs> All righty. Oh, well, super. Yeah. Well, look forward to, well, um, thank you so much. Uh, thank to seeing you, so much you next week. Me. Oh, you're quite Thank welcome. You so so much funny. For um me. Yeah, uh you were talking about Counterpulse San Francisco and Jess Curtis uh Gravity uh is presenting his um 
second weekend of Invisible um, this weekend and at Counterpost. I just thought that was kind of cool that, you know, sort wow. of you all are like crossing, you know, each other um, in the um, uh, in this conversation. So if you want to oh, wow. say hi to Jess, he's on the air now with uh, a couple of other choreographers, Sherwood. Uh, Adia. Ken. Oh, Sherwood, what's up? Hi. <laughs> and Gabriel Christian. <laughs> Hi there. Hi everybody. I'm so sorry. That was very loud. <laughs> <laughs> I was, was so thrilled loud. to hear Adia, to the the master who was already a master before the ma- MFA. I have to say. Aww. <laughs> Aww, thanks. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. So take care, everyone. <laughs> All right. Safe travels. See you later. Bye. Good luck. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for your patience. Um, I'm glad glad you were able to, to say hey, uh, Sherwood. I'm glad you're also able to join us because I know you're going to be traveling in a minute um, to your next hey, destination. Wanda. Hey, yeah, and and thank you so much, uh, Jess, um, for you know being available, Jess Curtis, to talk about you know your um, your. Uh, your program, you know, this year, this 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 season, oh. and uh, yeah, and I remember last year we had an opportunity to talk about gravity. I just love gravity; like it's so heavy, right? And we got people without electricity, <laughs> right? As we speak, like what? Mm-hmm. What? I mean, the people with money without electricity, like not the poor people that have been living without electricity on the streets for a minute, like they know how to survive, but the folks, like, wow, isn't that crazy? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, turning off really the electricity is. like for five days maybe like oh. yeah. So yeah. we're looking at the maps. Who's going next? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, gravity presents invisible. How do you experience a performance by seeing it? What if that's not possible? So I'm trying to think. Should I run through all of your bios and then we could talk about invisible? How sh- you think that will work good? I mean, should we do it that way? Your oh, call. Oh, you tell us we're what, really, what invisible. We're happy to be oh. here. Okay. At well, your service. Maybe. So, Jess, why don't you tell us? I'll read your bio, Jess, and you tell us what um, <laughs> invisible is, and then I'll read Gabriel Christian and Sherwood. And Sherwood, I'll, we'll let you talk a lot because we know you might have to slip out. So, Jess Curtis is an award-winning choreographer and performer committed to an art-making practice informed by experimentation innovation, critical discourse, and social relevance. He has created and performed multidisciplinary works throughout the United States and Europe with the radical San Francisco performance groups Contraband and Core and the experimental French circus company Cahen Caja. Yes. Did I say it right? Okay. In 2000, he founded his transcontinental performance company, Jess Curtis Gravity. And that's a forward slash there after Curtis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Curtis is active as a researcher and performance, and excuse me, researcher, writer, teacher, advocate, and community organizer in the fields of contemporary dance and performance. He holds an MFA in choreography and a PhD in performance studies from the University of California <laughs> at Davis. So, so with introduction um, to. Um, you know, what we're going to be talking about in, in your first weekend, this is your second weekend. Tell us, uh, Jess, about uh, Invisible, in in parentheses, and then Visible. Yeah, well, um, 
Invisible is a project we've been working on for almost two years now, or depending on sort of what which parts of our early experiments you count. Um, but this crew has actually been, we made a, a piece, uh, a sort of research piece in 2017. But the work really comes out of a lot of um, some of my experience um, as I've been collaborating with artists in the UK, particularly with Claire Cunningham. Um, and I've had the opportunity over the last few years to see um, what a number of productions and then to, to build into my own production what are called access accommodations um, for people with visual impairments, as well as for deaf folk too. But um, I got really interested um, in, uh, in practices that allow people um, who with low vision or people who are blind to be able to experience dance performance. And, um, you know, I've grown up as a dancer and throughout my career experiencing dances from the inside. And I know how exciting a dance can be um, beyond just what you see from from the audience. So um, with, with my last project with Claire, which was called The Way You Look At Me Tonight, um, we placed the audience on stage, and we did. We used a number of these practices that come out of making the work accessible to actually um, inspire audiences to feel the work in different ways, not just to sit back at the back of the auditorium and look at people jumping around on the other side of the room, but to really be in the middle of it. And that was a really successful and exciting the way that Claire and I used that in that piece and uh, but I felt like there was way more that we could do um, and that was super interesting to me so I invited Sherwood and Gabriel and um, four other dancers two of them from Berlin and two more from here from the Bay Area and we've been working for the last year and a half um, building up and researching uh, uh, just different ways of utilizing all of the senses in performance. So we've been, uh, we're, yeah, that's kind of the genesis of the work. And I think I'm, I'm really proud of it. We've, we've run it for, we've premiered it this summer in Berlin, and then we've just uh, opened it last weekend in Counterpulse, and we've gotten really great responses from folks and are really looking forward to this next weekend. Oh, awesome, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. So, Gabriel, um, Christian is a multidisciplinary artist bred in New York City and baking in Oakland, California. I hope that you have electricity <laughs> still, Gabriel. Are you on that list? Or no? I do, yeah. I am. I know. Actually, I'm totally safe from the list. I've been lucky. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah, me too. I'm like, oh, you know, you know, sort of like, yeah, I'm in the, I'm, well, I'm in Alameda, but. The people that are in the flats, like, right, like, we're good. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <sighs> yeah. Mm -hmm. we'll see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Gabriel's work um, uh, metabolizes the vernaculars with black, B-L-A-Q, diaspora, uh, futurity, afro vivalism. You can skip the next word. Vivalism. Like a little bit. Hard for the radio. Oh. Yes, it's okay. You can skip the next word. Okay. Um, through <laughs> body-based live performance and poetics. Moreover, I should have had this together from last year, right? Moreover, they feel the bio <laughs> to be an unfortunate byproduct of capitalistic modes like chattel slavery. 
Ah, okay, we have to take a pause here. Okay. Um, Sherwood Chin has worked as a performer with artists including Grisha Coleman, uh, Yoko Kaseki. Uh, Yuko, Yuko Kaseki. Right. Yuko Kaseki, Amara Tabor Smith, uh, Anna Halprin, Min uh, Tanaka, Xavier Leroy, Inkboat, Komu. How do you pronounce? Um, Murobushi. That, that, uh, Murobushi. Basically, uh, Chris, yeah, I've, I've been around the block. <laughs> so we <don't> right. <laughs> And and I know you teach classes at ODC because I went to their website. I'm like, oh, Sherwood is like all over this this schedule. Um, <laughs> he leads workshops for, for performers for in. Oh, that's oh, okay. He leads workshops for performers in studio and in natural and urban landscapes mm-hmm. worldwide. I remember running into you in Dakar. That was so cool. You and Amara. I think that was the last time we <laughs> saw each other. Almost it was in Dakar. Yeah. Oh, seriously? Dang, that was a long time ago. It was a long wow. time ago, yeah. Yeah, well, I really need to come see you in this. Uh, for over 20 years, he has served as a cultural worker in public nonprofit and philanthropic, philanthropic mm-hmm. sectors, focusing on community <clears throat> arts programming, arts education, arts grant making, and as an artist act, av- advocate in the United States, with a focus on supporting tradition based Native Californian and immigrant artists. And he has a website, SherwoodChin.com. All righty. So, um, Sherwood and Gabriel, tell us about your work in uh, Jeff Jess Curtis' Gravity Presents Invisible. Go for it, Gabriel. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Uh, <laughs> I know. That's why I beat you to it. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll just start by saying that we've both been involved in this for about three years now. So I think it's the third year, actually, that we've been um, in rehearsal in some way for uh, a project. This is, of course, two different projects, but... The first one was in 2017, and that was a very different um, experience. It was a first take, um, first draft, I guess, in a way, for how we were um, entering as able – me, I'll talk to myself as, – as, as I was entering as an able-bodied dancer who had um, also limited experience dancing and limited experience with access questions. So um, that piece went up in 2017 and sort of opened up a lot of um, those uh, curiosities, and I think this round has been a lot – um, I've come from a place not of expertise, but of sort of more, um, more ability to understand how to talk about and and engage with um, these things that are really complicated around access and um, and, and visual impairment that I just didn't have any uh, any language for before. So um, our role has been kind of I mean my role has been very much like stepping in and um, feeling humble and also feeling like um, there's a lot of things that can be learned in the room and bringing my own sort of like joy to the process and laughter and um, language. My, my, I'm, I'm trained as a theater actor from, from Yale University, so I have like lots of experience with scripts and languaging things. And so this whole process has been also asking us to be very vocal, um, which I, I do plenty of in my own work. So it's been nice to see how that carries over to um, the dance context. Mm. Mm-hmm. Sherwood? Oh, yeah. Well, um, other thing I would add maybe would be that um, I I, um, I feel like the with this piece Jess is really trying to provoke and ask questions for the audience uh, as you as you had read earlier in terms of um, the the material that you read at Wanda in terms of asking well in what way do you experience a dance and traditionally a dance is something that's really considered a very visual medium 
Um, and I think that this provocation is, for me, hits me on two fronts. One is, I think, for people in general who come together, the audience who's going to be there, we're going to share the space with the performers um, to really remind us of our, as humans, just our, our ability to be able to perceive and to feel and that we would have all of these um, resources at our, our sensory resources at our um, that, that are available for us. And so in that sense, I think that the piece really provokes that um, searching, opening, and questioning for, uh, for not only the public, but also the dancers. And that brings me to the second point, which is as a performer, I think that I've had a career um, and been trained in a way to, to almost unconsciously assume that the visual was going to be the default dominant um, mode of, of uh, communication. And I think that for me, this project has been very provocative and inclusive of, as, as Gabriel was mentioning, the earlier phases when we were beginning to research this and taking a look at um, the, the very rich practice of audio description that exists for television film performances, but then beginning to see how that's incorporated in real time live dancing. And I would say that as a, as a performer, that's been a, a wonderful challenge and also really pushing me to, uh, in, in addition to specifically working with um, the uh, fellow artists on the team who have visual impairments and other team members as well. Um, Jess, you can talk about them maybe perhaps uh, next. But in terms of uh, working with them, really allowing me to um, figuratively and perhaps very literally opening my eyes to new ways of, of actually considering um, what it means to perform for a public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would, so if Jess, I could jump in. Yeah, I was just going to say um, these uh, both Sherwood and um, and Gabriel are such articulate people and super interesting collaborators to work with, but um, and also humble. And I want to I want to just underline. I, I think one of the dangers of this piece in talking about it is that because we do we are sort of inspired and coming from a place of research around sense around perception and stuff that um, it can sound very brainy. Um, and actually, the piece is really, and both, both Sherwood and Gabriel just dance amazingly and ecstatically in this piece. And I, I get to watch this piece. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't perform in the piece. And, and just getting to feel the wind rushing by as either of them um, zoom through the room right in front of you or watch watch them um, work with each other they have a really beautiful duet at the beginning of the piece where they just they just really quickly uh describe little takes on what they're how they're interacting with each other and they're they're just amazingly beautiful dancers both both to see if you and to listen to um so i'm i'm really honored to work with the two of them well thank you mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit more about um sort of how how invisible um let's see uh unpacks the differences between the ways non sighted and sighted people experience and imagine a performance mm -hmm. or the world. Uh, because I was also looking at um this uh I don't know how to pronounce the person's name, Alva Noe. 
uh, of Noe, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh no, no, no. Gerald Gerald uh, Perner, uh, who is a um, yeah. photographer and uh, art critic and essayist and artist, and who's also blind, talked about sort of how um, the performance um, with your company. Um, the the um the critic says that the room starts in my head <laughs> um uh-huh. and uh then starts in the in the person's body and then uh the uh Perner writes I become the room I don't recognize it and I don't perceive it I just become the room itself became the flesh between the pictures and the room I'm like wow what an interesting I um, love yeah. reflection on 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 the piece and on the work, and I'm like, okay, so how do how do you facilitate that? <laughs> you know, choreographers, you know, um, you know, in the studio presence, sure. how do you do that? Well, one of the things, that, one of the really basic things that we did was uh, we worked a lot in the dark, and we also mm. worked. Our composer Sam Hurt um, mm. is a, a, a experimental composer who actually is a graduate of the master's program at Mills College in Oakland, um, and mm-hmm. Sam had us do a lot of, of, what's, what, of deep, what, what are called deep listening exercises from um, an amazing artist, Pauline Oliveros. We did a lot of her sort of exercises around just listening to the room, and as, as the dancers began to dance, thinking about how the, the dance, the sounds that their dance was making, as much as what it might look like and because we were in the dark what it might look like um was kind of irrelevant in a certain way so um i think there's that element of it and it's been um and then the the audience is really literally in the room with us that you have a a number of choices um you can either sit around the edges when you come like the risers at counterpulse we've blocked off and so everyone is on the stage and then there are there's a row, a circle of chairs in the middle facing out, so those people are literally right in the middle of the dance. And then there are a variety of other places, sort of on the diagonals and throughout the space, where you can sit and the dancers literally, you know, rush past you or uh, are dancing around you. Gabriel has this amazing <laughs> moment in one of the large sections where he just he they uh, Gabriel runs around and says says, I'm orbiting, I'm orbiting, and um, and is orbits each of the, the sort of positions in the room, and you feel Gabriel, you know, brushing past you, and and um, and really in a kind of ecstatic state, and it's really transcends in a different way. So I think um, what Gerald talks about is is this mobilization of hearing and feeling the room, sort of locates mm-hmm. in it in a different way, whereas when we're used to just looking at things across the room, they're distant, they're farther away, they're other than us. And in I think when we, we take away vision, so yeah, in this piece, about 20 minutes of the piece in total is, is in the dark um, in, and very low lighting. So you, it, we hope to bring your attention to your, your other senses um, other than vision, so you really get to feel your own body in the middle of it and feel part of it. Mm, wow. That sounds really, really fascinating. Um, and then there are um, 
pre-show touch tours for every show. Yeah. Um, as well as ASL interpretation um, uh, for, I guess, um, uh, deaf, and it says D forward slash deaf audiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the pre-show mm-hmm. touch tour? Does one of you want to explain our pre-show touch tours? Uh, well, uh, from my experience of it, it's been a uh, we have these we have these elements of the set that are maybe hard to explain when the audio describer is talking about the show when it's happening. So before the show, we'll invite visually impaired audiences or folks who maybe are curious about the um, the usage of this sort of um, new technique and uh, making things visible for folks um, to come early and they can they can feel the props of the set get a sense of the room, and also talk to all the performers beforehand who will describe themselves um, kind of from top to bottom, what they're wearing, what kind of sounds their shoes make, and that way during the show when um, they're being described, it won't be as much of a jump to to imagine where they might be, who they might be, what they might look like, um, what the room might look like. So it's sort of like a a a preamble uh, kind of thing for those who will have a harder time gathering those we also, um, in the, usually in the touch doors, we also hone in and zone, zoom into a specific moment in the piece that will be performed and really try to break it down in a way to be able to allow um, those who are taking the touch tour to to feel the contours of uh, our, our physical positions, um, to be able to describe what happened so that they, they can get um, some insights that uh, they, you, w- you wouldn't necessarily get just by coming to the performance. Mm, wow, that's really, really, really nice. Um, so um, I was wondering, uh, Gabriel and, and Sherwood, if you could talk about if, I don't know, if your primary um, uh, sense is visual um, or not. Mm. But I was wondering sort of shifting from um, sort of the way that you operate, you know, as a, a sensory being, to be able to um uh, to be able to i guess envision and create work that has a strong other sense that one you know maybe that you weren't as strong and in you know then but probably now you are because you've been working on this i think you said for a year or two well it's been a cha- it's been um it's been quite a rich challenge for me like i i feel like mm-hmm. even though we we have we had started research a couple of years back it's it's something that every day i'm having to come into the space and try to find something new and also to, to and really to to say that this is also something that Jess really encourages uh for us is that this is not just some sort of written piece with everything kind of set um <laughs> Uh, set and choreographed to the T, and there's a real commitment in this. Is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jess, but I feel like there's a re- also a real, a real dedicated commitment to the higher art of improvisation, which is also an additional mm-hmm. challenge, which really allows us, pushes us towards being very present in the moment, which then, to go back to your question, Wanda, really demands us to have to touch base with what we're feeling, what we're sensing, and what we're perceiving. And so for me, even though we have four more performances this week, Thursday through Sunday, uh, each 
night having to come into sort of an arena of senses in order to to navigate it as a performer and also in many ways in respect to who is there in the space the the chemistry or the frequency of of the public who's there that constellation of people mm-hmm. ah, wow yeah so um each night is is I mean, there is the scaffolding, but there's room for change so that um, the audience participates in the creation of the work that um, they're perceiving? To some degree. I mean, I, I think I would, I, pers- I would maybe describe it. It's a little more sturdy than just scaffolding. Um, okay. So that I, we have we – have, we call them scores, um, sort of like mm-hmm. a musical score. So um, mm-hmm. the each section, um, I would say, if, if you come more than once, which now several people have come multiple times, um, mm-hmm. each section sort of looks the same, but the exact um, actions or things, the, the the specific actions or things that a, a dancer might do or say in any given moment are are open because we are working, as Sherwood said, very much with what are you perceiving right now? One of the first scores, the dancers are all lying on the floor in the dark, and their score is to pick one of the sensations in their body and just tell the audience, like, I'm feeling pressure against the floor, or I'm Mm -hmm. beginning to see a shimmer of light on the golden curtain, or... Um, and so every night to be really true to that process and really reflect something um, that is actually happening in their body at every moment is, is what we try to do. So there's still a structure to that, you know, because they're all lying on the floor. Pretty much every night somebody will say, I'm feeling pressure against the floor. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it's really open. It's really open to to uh, them really being in that. And then we have what we call, uh, we've, we've made up a new word we call grammaturgy. So it's kind of mixing the word dramaturgy with grammar. Um, so uh, one of the tools we use in this sort of collision of using language to describe movement is that each, um, throughout the piece, different scores have different grammatical structures. So in that opening, in that opening phase, people speak um, in the first person um, first person present and say I am walking across the room I am jumping I am running around whatever they're doing they speak about themselves and then there's a really beautiful duet later in the piece where um, on uh, where Gabriel and and one of the German performers Xenia speak to each other and and they describe what the other person is doing so they'll speak in the second person and say, you are, you are holding a microphone. You are smiling at me. You are feeling embarrassed. Um, and so using those kind of structures uh, are, are kind of the, the core of how we keep a balance of having the piece be consistent each night and, uh, and also be alive in every moment, every night too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so invisible is 
created and performed by an international cast of six blind, visually impaired, and sighted body-based dancers and performers. So, um, uh, Sherwood and, and Gabriel, how how has it been? Um, or maybe maybe this was not something that you hadn't um, experienced before, but working with with artists that um, have different sensorial abilities, um, like. For instance, I believe if a person is 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 visually impaired or blind, that they probably have heightened um, abilities in other areas. So I was just wondering, um, sort of how how that's worked out insofar as creating the work that you all have that you're presenting presently. Um, it's been it's been really. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. It's been really um, actually funny because one of the things that I definitely have noticed with um, one of the performers named Tiffany, who we've worked with for two years now, uh, she makes a joke mm-hmm. a lot that um, that sighted people don't really listen that well. Uh, so even when we're like <laughs> getting notes from Jess or we're talking amongst ourselves, um, she'll have all the information like usually like like minutes before any of the rest of us have it because we've all been sort of talking over each other and not quite tuned into our listening sense. And she's definitely mm-hmm. recording everything in her auditory space. So. She has like the instruction sound. She knows when things are happening. She knows all these things are um, are kind of uh, are clear to her from a, from that space. And so I've been constantly aware of how much I'm uh, still still very much using my visual uh, information in, in terms of gags, jokes, notes, all these things. That definitely comes up in the rehearsal process. Um, but apart from that, I think it's been really um, gorgeous. I mean, not just working with folks who are blind and visually impaired, but also working with folks who are German. Um, it's been also a new thing for me in working people with different language abilities. Uh, we went to Germany, mm-hmm. and the the piece actually was a little, was actually performed more in German there than it is here in the Bay. So uh, mm-hmm. also having the sort of dispositing um, of my language as well, as well as my ability was sort of a uh, new thing for me, and also working abroad was a new thing for me. So personally, it was a lot of uh, steps towards um, trying to understand what it is to be a performer internationally and also through different types of bodies. So I, I did appreciate that um, a lot. No, I just wanted to add, and also it was a little bit reflecting upon, Wanda, your your uh, previous question, what my experience was as a performer and working with uh, a cast of, 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 people, of just people who see in different ways. Uh, mm-hmm. I, as a sighted performer, am actually a representative of a dominant culture, and I think that in working with these performers, it has been incredibly humbling and opening for me to be able to recognize how light dependent as as a term that we've kind of discussed in 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 our, in our process are light dependent I am and that actually is a, a great handicap that actually has pushed me to try to um, ask bigger bigger questions of what it means to to as a performer to perform and in, in, in what way are we sharing um, and so this project really has set that up so that those kind of standards which are so revolving around the kind of dominant visual, culture um, are really put into question and to be able to work with these performers um, who are so skilled at be able to uh, um, is is wonderful I mean there, these moments in the dark that we're, we were you know trying to train in the dark um, <laughs> there's there's the the cast who is much more light dependent ends up um, whoa whoa you know feeling so disoriented meanwhile um, Tiffany Taylor who who um, Gabriel mentioned is like what same, you know, it, uh, she has uh, full command and competency in the space, and and uh, that's really a great thing to to see and learn. And it's it's 
a challenge. Um, as somebody who's representing a dominant culture, uh, it takes so long to be able to undo those kind of um, um, conditions. Mhm. Yeah. 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 When I when I think about um, uh, you know being being light dependent, um, and and I I see how well you know people that are not light dependent function, um, <laughs> you know, uh, outside of that particular paradigm. There there's a fear, um, and there's also a trust. I mean, there if there was trust, then there wouldn't be the fear. But because, um, you know, when when you're in different spaces like trying to cross the street or in the public and, you know, there's a lot going on and you have to move in the space and you want to be safe, it's like, ah, so I'm really happy that I can open my eyes and, 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 you know, navigate myself across these different, you know, spaces. But I just wonder about, you know, as 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 choreographers and dancers, you know, the whole idea of trust and fear and, and where, where does that go <laughs> um, when you are, um, you know, put into situations or you put yourself in a situation where um, there's a need to lean on somebody else, somebody else's strength even. Yeah, I think one of the things we're – we're learning or we have learned and we continue to work on is also, um, it's also not projecting um, onto people with visual impairment. Um, One of our collaborators, Georgina Klieg, who is a blind author um, who uh, teaches at at Cal at at UC Berkeley, has a great Mm -hmm. book called um, More Than Meets the Eye, What Blindness Brings to Art. And she has a great chapter in that book, just talking about all the ways that we use blind people as metaphors for either being ignorant or being um, being the needing our sympathy or needing our our help and she's quite um, adamant about you know there there are lots of, of very autonomous blind people that that um, that really get along in the world and as mm-hmm. with many kinds of disability it really comes down to what are the structures that we as a society create that get in people's way or that are, you know, sight-dependent um, or light-dependent, as Sherwood calls it, um, that that are – what are ways that we – yeah, that, that we've constructed um, situations that, that, that rely on sight. So I think it's really um, been super interesting to just – sort of get some of those out of the way and, and develop different practices. So like when we're sitting in a room noticing how how often we'll just say, you know, oh, over there and point our point our head or our gaze toward <laughs> something and expect mm-hmm. everyone in the room to know what we're talking about. And it's been re- – that's a really, a really um, pernicious habit to try to get over and remember to say over – to my left in the, you know, in the back corner of the room um, or even just in it talking about talking to someone in a room instead of just saying you when there are five people in the room and, and knowing how, how, so little habits like that, that are, that are interesting mm-hmm. to notice and go, Oh, okay. That's, um, that's something. And then, and then I think there's something I really, I find um, sort of these situations also like 
that Sherwood and Gabriel were describing about just noticing attend people's attention that, that it's it's a bit of a myth that um, blind folks have actually heightened sense abilities in other directions. It's really just that they they in general folks that aren't relying on sight have have more of their attention in into in listening, and so it's not mm -hmm. it's actually something we can learn from them um, from our collaborators is like yeah just you, you listen more. And 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 it's not it's not a super it's not you know daredevil super ability it's just <laughs> mm -hmm. paying attention to what you hear more than you know as much as what you see so that's been super interesting. Mhm. Mm right. Right. Yeah. And I just also think about people that are um, deaf or um, that mm -hmm. uh, speak ASL. Um, how you know I have friends that that speak ASL, but they also read lips for those of us who are not yeah. fluent in their language. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, I can't, I have, I've got to face the person, right? Right, <laughs> you can't, exactly. You can't talk behind yeah. their head. And so, you know, you're talking yeah. about, you know, different orientations. Right, yeah, oh, of course, yeah, we, we know that, or if we think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, these are not super people. They just, you know, sort of honed in on, other aspects of their sensory um, tools that, like you yeah. said, we, we could do, but, you know, the default <clears throat> is visual when you can. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. and I think it's important mm -hmm. that we create mixed space because all it takes is spending a little bit of time with somebody who's different than you to mm -hmm. notice and go, oh, right, okay, I need to pay attention to that. and. Now, for me, I often walk into performances or things, and I notice, I notice like, oh, this is not accessible, and why, there, with some really simple choices, somebody could make it a more accessible space. So I think the more, the more mixed um, we have, the more accessible spaces are, then the, the wider range of people that can access them, and the more we all become familiar with with more diversity and and can support more diversity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to keep you all because I know sure what you have somewhere to go. But wondering, closing, um, maybe you might want to talk about who you like to see in the audience, um, who you haven't seen yet in the audience, and then Jess, I wanted you to talk about the Lighthouse for the Blind and the uh, the Center for Cultural Innovation. But I know the uh, Lighthouse for the Blind they. They're a really wonderful um, organization. A friend of mine um, is a part of it. So anyway, I want you to be able to talk about that too. Cool. But go so who would you Sherman like to see? Gabe. Um, I don't know. Apart from just folks who are in the deaf community, I guess I really wouldn't mind seeing uh, more folks from the neighborhood come see the show. Um, and mm -hmm. also... Um, Folks who maybe uh, have less experience with dance, I think we'll get a really holy experience from this kind of uh, work because it really is giving them so much more, so much more sensation than they would get from watching a ballet. So that's my my first uh, my first understanding of who I would love to see there in the space with us. Yeah, Sherwood, sure. do you have any particular audiences here you wish would be there? Uh, well, I agree with Gabe, and I also think that this is the kind of piece that both uh, traditional 
dance and theater audiences would uh, come out feeling really stimulated by because it really challenges uh, the the existing notions of what a performance is in terms of its visual typical visual orientation. But also, I think that um, anybody who has a body who, who actually can sense is, is, would, would, would be able to get a lot out of the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I mean, I'm just as as a producer <laughs> of this of piece too. I'm like, I want everyone to come. I think it's an amazing show for everybody, um, regardless of whether you have. I think there are different things in it for different people. It's really fun and really funny. Um, mm-hmm. the, and um, the uh, performers are amazing, and the set and costumes are beautiful, and the the music. <clears throat> that Sam has made that underpins um, all of this talking that we've talked about is really beautiful. So it's it's a it's 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 a smart show, but it's also really entertaining and and engaging. And um, so I hope anyone. It's a great date night. I've been telling some of my friends that you get to you can sit in the dark and hold your hand the hold hold the hand of your date. Um, and Although it's really fun. You also run the risk that some, one of the performers may hold your hand. As well. <laughs> yes, that, that oh, is possible. Nice. Or sit on your lap. If you sit in certain chairs and have consent and that where you've opted into being in contact with the performers, one of them may sit on sit on your lap or give you a head massage at some point during the piece. Audience members always, we reserve, they reserve, we reserve the right that audience members always have the right to say no thank you. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, so would you say that this would be great for um, all ages, like parents could bring their children? Absolutely. I'm, uh, the one thing is that there, there's uh, a cup, one extended period of, of absolute darkness, um, mm-hmm. that we had in Berlin, a, a colleague of ours try, tried the experiment of bringing his one-year-old um, and who made it five minutes through the darkness and then sort of got a little upset and and they had to leave. But, but it's really, um, yeah, it's really fun and visual. And ironically, it's also, it is a very visual piece that, um, and swirling around and, it's a really fun piece and accessible, I think, to a whole age range. Um, uh, there have been a number of kids that have come and, and seen it and uh, and enjoyed it. And it's about an hour long. It, it's an hour long without an intermission, so it's not, you know, a three-hour opera. Yeah. yeah, so I think all ages and all styles and of folks can, can really access something in it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, and all the performances take place at Counterpulse, 80 Church Street in San Francisco, and you can visit JessCurtisGravity.org forward slash invisible for the box office, or you can call 415-626-2060, and tickets are reasonable, 10 to $30, so that's pretty cool as well. Yeah, um, yeah so Jess, um, tell us a little bit about uh, Lighthouse, um, one of your collaborators? Sure. I mean, yeah, Lighthouse for the Blind has been really supportive over the last four years of, as we've been developing this kind of work. Um, Serena Olson, in particular, the adult uh, adult programs coordinator there, 
um, have brings has brought groups of, of folks to uh, to our shows. There, I think I, I think there the lighthouse has actually bought a block of tickets on Friday night. And um, if you're a, a San Francisco resident and you have visual impairment or a member of Lighthouse for the Blind, you can come for free to the show. You need to contact Lighthouse to do that. But um, we've been, uh, over the last year, uh, teaching contact improvisation dance classes at Lighthouse. And, then, and they've been also bringing folks to a number of our um, of our sort of work in progress showing to kind of test out how how would these techniques work for folks that that uh, that have visual impairment, um, and so that's been a really in good uh, partnership. We're also Gravity's um, in addition to to this piece that has all of these sort of access accommodations embedded in it. We're also offering audio description <clears throat> and touch tours. Um, for other artists' work, so we've got a we've kind of built a little uh, set of programs that we call Gravity Access Services, where we can come to your show if you're a choreographer and want to make your work accessible, or a, or a theater director, um, you can uh, you can hire us to come in and we'll watch the piece and then describe it. Gabriel and Sherwood have both. Um, worked oh, at, nice. to describe cult, different cultural events in the Bay Area over the last two years, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. we're building up that service, and we're going to be doing um, for Shotgun Players Play Elevada in in Berkeley on uh, November mm-hmm. 17th in the afternoon, and we'll be doing something at OBC for Hope More on November 9th, and we're going to be describing for Axis Dance. Um, at, who are yeah. performing at Z Space in San Francisco on October 27th. So um, mm-hmm. we're doing. There's a lot of that, and we've we've done a lot of that partnering with Lighthouse for the Blind as well. Um, they've been really supportive and instrumental in our um, in our sort of development of that practice and helping us reach out to blind audiences um, around the Bay Area to to do that. Oh, that's awesome! Oh, that's really great. That's really, yeah. really great. Yeah, so we'll have everybody who wants to be in the audience can be in the audience. Yeah. And also on stage, as you know, as you are illustrating, you know, in the work, and Axis has a really long tradition of, of doing um, really wonderful work um, for a variety of different kinds of folks, you know, different bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, we see everybody on the stage, which is great, because sometimes, you know, you think – like who's missing, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. and this is, I mean, Tiffany Tiffany is actually a prime example of that. That Tiffany trained as an actor at, in college, but the first time that she had come to an audio describe, she came to Claire in my piece uh, in 2016, um, three years ago, and um, was, and it was the first time that she had been to an audio described dance event, and coming out of that she was inspired and she came to a workshop that I was teaching and then I invited her to be in a piece and when you think about you know when I think about how I became an artist it was because I went and saw something I actually think I, my first dance program was seeing the Oakland Ballet when I was in high school up in Chico California and the Oakland Ballet came and I went I wanted I was I saw it and I went I want to do that and I started taking ballet classes and in high school and um and that i think 
in order to make make also who's on stage more diverse, we need to let a more, a more diverse range of people experience the work. And then I think it really comes around when more diverse artists are able to train and become professional, then we have a much more rich range of voices um, pr creating culture in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. Any any um, concluding thoughts from anyone? <laughs> 